3: then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk.
4: The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and improve. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com the African Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. worldafropedia.com
5: North Carolina,
6: the ruling stands. North Carolina's strict voter ID law is unconstitutional. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear an appeal challenging a lower court ruling that found the law racially discriminatory. The lower court said the Republican-led legislature targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. The legal fight is over. The GOP voter ID law is dead. WUNC Capitol Bureau Chief Jeff Tabiri joins me now to talk about the latest. Welcome back, Jeff. Hello, Frank. All right. So remind us what that 2013 voter ID
7: law did. It came days after the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, struck down part of the Federal Voting Rights Act. And in the law that was enacted by Republican lawmakers here in North Carolina, it did several significant things There were notable and controversial provisions. It mandated photo identification. It reduced the amount of early voting time from 17 down to 10 days. It uh, eliminated altogether same-day registration and out-of-precinct Uh, balloting as well as eliminating uh, pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. Plaintiffs sued. They said that uh, those are provisions, those were changes that disproportionately burdened and affected African-American and Latino voters. So it first went to uh, a trial. One judge uh, at the the federal level district court in Winston-Salem, Judge Thomas Schroeder, a Uh, A nominee of uh, President George W. Bush ruled that the law was constitutional, said that plaintiffs, the NAACP, the ACLU, among, I believe, five, including the Department of Justice, uh, Schroeder ruled that it was a a constitutional law and that the plaintiffs had not demonstrated there uh, were any clear issues of of discrimination or evidence that showed why this law needed to be overturned. Plaintiffs then took their case to the 4th Circuit Court of Appeals in Richmond. A three-judge panel there ruled that it was unconstitutional and as you noted said that the provisions targeted African Americans with uh, surgical like precision.
6: Yeah, there were five main, five main points in that uh, mm-hmm. in the law that they target they said absolutely showed that this was a racially discriminatory law, right? They they
7: did. Uh and and Yes, And they also
6: that, that, the, that the legislature uh, and the governor at that time had failed to identify even a single individual who had ever been charged with committing uh, in-person voter fraud in North Carolina. In other words, there was no problem. And then when we see how these particular provisions targeted African-Americans and disproportionately hurt them, it does start to build a case. For an intentional act to disenfranchise African-American
7: voters. Yes, and and one note, perhaps a bit tangential, is that uh, there have been few, but some incidents of voter fraud found when we uh, think about mail-in and absentee balloting, and that is not something that was uh, included under this very controversial law four years ago. Supreme Court refused to hear the case. Why? Uh, That's not entirely clear, and that's the practice of the Supreme Court. They don't say exactly why they are not taking this, but uh, Justice John Roberts, chief justice, indicated that some of this has to do with the blizzard of filings, his word, blizzard, uh, and the the many different folks who are trying to uh, join and be party to this case and, and others. Um, remember that Pat McCrory was a defendant on this case. He was the governor. He's been unseated. Uh, and now Governor Roy Cooper wanted to withdraw from this case. So uh, it, it's unclear reading Robert's statement today, if this his concern, it appears, is that, you know, was this case even before them uh, legitimately, appropriately? So uh, they have have decided not to hear the appeal. They have not ruled on the merits of the case. They're not saying that this law is terrible or that this law is acceptable and, and can be worked around. They're Just to be clear, they they haven't ruled on that. Right. So here we are now. There is a a
6: nine-person Supreme Court with a majority, we would assume, conservative, given the fact that the last appointee was a Trump nomination. Uh, And that court has refused to hear this case. What are they saying in legal circles about what that means and how to interpret that?
7: So what the Fourth Circuit ruled last summer is now... It establishes precedent. So if the General Assembly came back in tomorrow and tried to enact something similar, the plaintiffs would fairly simply go to a court and say, hey, they can't do this. Here's the Fourth Circuit ruling, uh, and it would be null and void. So will there be another workaround from state uh, Republican lawmakers? Uh, I, would, I would surmise to, to, yeah, I think there will be. But exactly under, under what terms and when and how, that remains to be seen. This was a big law. This was a big election law with some, some very substantial provisions. And conventional wisdom, and I chatted with a couple of different attorneys today, is that there are other challenges pertaining to voter ID that are more narrow in scope. There's one in Texas. There's one in Wisconsin. And as you, you think about how the Supreme Court tends to move on these, th- these things incrementally, by and large, it, it seems more likely to some of the legal folks I chatted with today that it would be uh, more likely for them to take a case that is more narrow in scope than North Carolina's law, which was really a, a huge motherload.
6: All right, Jeff. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Jeff Dabiri, WUNC Capital Bureau Chief.
4: Seattle's a great place to visit because
8: it has, I guess you could say, a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything.
9: South King County has become a hub for immigrants and refugees. It's because it's more affordable than Seattle. But more people are starting to move there, and those high Seattle rents are starting to follow them. And that's adding to the pressure of life in South King County. Carolyn Adolph of KUW's Region of Boom Team reports.
8: On a street corner in a place called Skyway, there's a young woman working a food stand. Trust me,
10: I've seen it all. I've seen people leave. I've seen people come. This is Jordan
8: Bolton, and she lives near here.
10: We're on 129th Street and MLK. Um, You can get everything almost here.
8: We're in a chunk of unincorporated King County between Taquila and Renton.
10: We have tacos and we have barbecue, so you can get some food up here. That's where I work at. I work at LT's Famous Barbecue. And then we have Tent City right in the back of us.
8: Skyway is a place where people of modest means try to get or keep a foothold. It's also a giant melting pot. Jordan Bolton.
10: I can't say there's one race. There's so many people we'll have from Asians to Mexicans to white, black. Everybody comes and buys the food. If you don't have the exact amount of money, we will work something out with you.
8: She says Skyway will take you whether you're on the way up or down the ladder.
10: It's a place where people can come if they have nowhere to go. And Skyway will open their arms. Even if, like, even whatever you have in your past, we will wipe kind of like a new slate.
8: Skyway isn't the only place where this is happening. Lots of people are coming south to start over. People with lower incomes are leaving Seattle. They're heading to South King County to places like Kent, Renton, and Auburn in search of something affordable. Especially people of color particularly African Americans who had been living in neighborhoods that are now highly sought after by people with money.
11: When people lose their homes in Seattle, they're pushed out or bought out or rents are going so high.
8: This is Gwen Allen Carston. She's a community activist and a business owner in Kent. She's been watching as African Americans from Seattle move to Kent in search of an affordable life. At first, she says, things go well. But parts of South King County are seeing bigger rent increases than in Seattle. So a few months down the road... You go to work and you come
11: home and you find a note on your door telling you your rent's going to be raised and there's nothing you can do about it.
8: Karsten is a member of the Kent Black Action Commission and her hair care shop is a center of black life in Kent. But affordable housing is in short supply. We have multiple
11: families living in places right now because they cannot find separate places for
8: themselves. Because there's been less building there. So people keep pushing south.
11: Some people are going out as far as Pacific, Algona. Some people are even venturing, venturing out to Sumner. You know. So how much further can we push people without bringing a remedy to all of this, the high rent, the, the escalating in, in costs? Belinda
8: Derrick works for Karsten. She says her friends and relatives are considering a new destination.
10: It seems like Tacoma's cheaper now. Then the you apartment. have to drive. Yeah, I mean, the drive is a lot, but the apartment's cheaper to live in.
2: I accidentally made a
0: map one time.
8: This is Tim Thomas. He's a doctoral student in sociology at the University of Washington. And he's been digging deep into census data.
0: What I found is that there's this massive shift of African-Americans in Seattle moving away from where opportunity or
2: higher income areas are.
8: Thomas says high rents have been driving people out of neighborhoods where their families and friends have lived for decades. Places they were driven to originally by housing policies that targeted African-Americans. Now they're being forced to move on. Thomas's maps show a strong trend of poor people heading south from Seattle in 2010, and that trend is stronger in 2015.
0: You see the migration of race as well as the migration of poverty. This massive shift of African Americans moving south, that's a big story.
12: There are fewer places to be displaced to.
8: This is Nathan Phillips of the YMCA. We're driving along the border between Taquila and SeaTac. He stops at an old converted motel. This
12: is Birchcrest Apartments, across the street from a trailer park here.
8: One of the few places left to go when you've been pushed out.
12: Your household income goes down by $50 a month. Um, That might be enough to displace you to kind of one rung down on the housing ladder, which is sometimes old converted motels, mobile home parks, or for some families, even homelessness. There's not a lot of room left. Um, at the bottom of the ladder.
8: One look at the birch crest and you see people trying to make it feel like home. The tree out front is decorated in Easter eggs. People have barbecues outside for cooking. But being this close to the edge in South King County is stressful. Nathan Phillips.
12: If you look at life expectancy in King County, um, our most affluent communities now have life expectancies in the 90s, approaching hundreds, and in our lower-income communities, we have life expectancies in some communities in Southampton County that are still in the high 60s. The place you live shouldn't be the determiner of how long you live.
8: Phillips says people need opportunities to get on the ladder heading up. That's something Jordan Bolton is making happen herself. She's partway through year up, six months of learning coder skills, six months of internship, like a boot camp for tech.
10: It's a rough six months and then, I don't know, I haven't got to the internship yet.
8: She says she's seen people find jobs and leave the homeless encampment. Immigrants coming in and moving on.
10: Whether I move anywhere or any place, I'm not going to be able to change myself if I can't change myself here. So
8: That opportunity to renew yourself, that's something Jordan Bolton says can still happen. In South King County, right, I'm, I'm Carolyn Adolph. KUOW News.
2: Black babies cost less.
3: And here's the latest example of NPR's investigative reporting. America is the most dangerous place in the developed world to have a baby. Not just for infant mortality either, for the mother. Women here are three times more likely to die in childbirth than women in Canada, and six times more likely than in Scandinavia. ProPublica's Nina Martin and Renee Montaigne, the longtime Morning Edition host, now a special correspondent for Morning Edition, teamed up for a six-month-long investigation on maternal mortality in the United States, and they're here to talk about their findings. Renee, thanks for coming on with us. Hi, nice to hear you again.
13: Yes, nice to be here.
3: And, Nina, welcome to WNYC.
13: Thank you so much. Nice to be here.
3: So, Nina, every year in the U.S., you report 700 to 900 women Die from pregnancy or childbirth related causes, and some 65,000 nearly die. Are those surprising numbers to you?
14: Um, they are. I think most people think of maternal deaths. Um, as being a thing of the past, sort of, you know, Downton Abbey, Sybil dying in childbirth. that We're done with that. Um, and I think most people don't know anything at all about the near deaths, the complicate, you know, and, and near deaths are thought to be about, uh, the, the CDC says, um, you know, for every death in the U.S., there are 100 women who nearly die. Those are pretty, and they mean really nearly die, not just mild complications. Those are pretty staggering numbers.
3: So Renee, what are some of the main causes of death or near death in childbirth?
13: Well, there, there, are, there are several causes. Some rare, some not so rare. One is preeclampsia, which which leads to hypertension, high blood pressure, it, uh, of a sort that can be fatal if not stopped earlier. There's hemorrhage there, and that is one of the most common, if not in some. Groups the the most common. There are cardiac issues, um, cardiac arrest at different stages, and and also postpartum, and that's a really important new uh, thing that that the medical community is starting to look at. Um, there are infections, sepsis, and you know some of these. You know I found interesting that so many of these, in preeclampsia being one mentioned, Downton Abbey, that's what Sybil Sybil died from back in nineteen you know 19, 19, 20 These are these are Complications that have been around for uh, uh, forever—they're um, in the literature, they're in history. Uh, they show up, uh, you know, as as you know, childbirth deaths, um, and yet the 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 United States has not got a handle on some of these that have every reason never to happen, almost never to happen. Uh, for instance, in the preeclampsia. Um, That that is that is a complication that Great Britain has pretty much um, pretty much solved Two women in two years as a death. Oh, not not as a not as a complication, but as a death. And we're talking about uh, women dying here. Um, It's pretty much solved. Whereas in the United States, there's a percentage uh, uh, there's a percentage of women and it's more in the dozens, but it is. Way farther higher than in Great Britain, and, and probably not, maybe none of them should have died.
3: Nina, why?
13: Well, one of the big issues
14: um, around preeclampsia in, in particular is, um, and hemorrhage fits into this category, another big one are blood clots, um, is preventability. So there's been some re- recent research from the CDC Foundation showing that um, in the states that they examined, they did analyses in in, in four states, and they're, but the, this is broader than this, and also California has done analyses, et cetera, that something like um, that the most preventable causes of death in the U.S., are hemorrhage, preeclampsia, and um, uh, um, and blood clots. I should say that the most preventable pregnancy-related deaths are caused by these conditions. And and the problem is that in the U.S., um, you know, these are conditions that that doctors in, and nurses and providers and hospitals and midwives and many you know people in in the U.S. know how to as as well as they do in in britain but there's um, you know there's a real fragmentation of the healthcare system here there's a lot of different uh, pro- ways that obgyns and nurses and hospitals practice there's there's basically uh, a real lack of standardization in terms of what you should do when you encounter a medical emergency, and a big issue is that because maternal deaths are, you know, a lot rarer than um, uh, infant deaths. First of all, we focus hospitals and providers are sort of have been really focusing um, their attention around maternal uh, around safety in the in the what they call the perinatal period. So, really, more on the on the infant, um, you know, the very vulnerable infant than the mother. And part of that is because um, there's this real perception that you know. That that ma- that maternal deaths are rare, and that um, the mom is you know pretty much always going to be fine. It's the baby that's going to have that's going to have the problems. And so what you what you have happen is that a lot of providers um, uh, don't uh, they're just not prepared for emergencies. The emergencies are rare, and when they happen, they go down. They can go downhill really fast. And you know you're supposed to be pre- ideally you'd want your providers to be prepared for the the you know the the rare event just like. We want airlines to be prepared for the rare, um, you know, the possibility of a, of a crash. Um, but in the U.S., around maternal care, they have not been prepared. And I would say this also goes uh, both for – this is also an issue um, that not just for um, for affluent women, obviously, like, like Lauren, but also, you know, African-American women and women of color. This is kind of an across-the-board
3: problem. So, Nina, let me stay with you for a minute. Would that difference – of unpreparedness at hospitals, maternity wards in the United States um, being worse than in Canada, being worse than in Scandinavia, other developed countries, be for a um, systemic reason? Is it something about the funding mechanisms here, uh, the way we pay for health care? Or if you're saying the problem is or one of the big problems is that our medical institutions are not prepared for pregnancy and childbirth emergencies, why would that be different here?
14: Um, I would say that it is a systemic reason, or I should say reasons. I think they're really complicated, and it's one of the, that's part of why we're doing this project, is we really want to try to tease them out. Um, I think that, you know, we have a very fragmented healthcare system. We don't pay very close attention to patients from the beginning to the end. A lot of women don't get healthcare, very good healthcare. They get you know, you know, people always think about prenatal care, but a lot of, um, but, but women in this in the U.S. are are more likely to have good, you know, decent or at least access to prenatal care than they are to have um, access to postpartum care. And postpartum care, we know from the recent um, data, is, uh, postpartum oh, many of these deaths occur in the postpartum period, especially mm. um, deaths uh, involving cardiac issues and and um, and also mental health issues, which are really important to. Uh, Including all of this, so so there's that. There's um, you know just a lack of standardization. I mean, we if you think about it, there's you know um, you know thousands of hospitals that deliver babies in the U.S. and um, care for preg- uh, pregnant uh, care for new mothers, and and all of them are are they're, they're, You know some of them belong to systems and chains, but but they but they basically all operate separately. We don't have national standards. We also don't have a national sort of systemic analysis or uh, uh, national or state sort of uh, analyses of deaths when they occur, maternal deaths when they recur. They don't have to be, you know, reported to any particular organization. Um, so basically what you have is a system where people, um, you know, the system is really fragmented. And then, of course, we have a population that is getting older, that's getting heavier, that's getting ha- having more preexisting chronic conditions going into pregnancy, which makes pregnancy much more difficult to manage. Um, and so you have all of these things happening at the same time. and so so, um, you know, and, and, and then when a death occurs, um, it's it's hidden. It's it's These women are, are lost.
15: Gus T. Renegade, I just wanted to point out in that segment, the most important factor in that, I just posted a documentary film about the astronomically high rate of maternal mortality rates for black mothers. Um, they do not point out in explaining why, The maternal mortality rate is so high in the United States in comparison to other when they say industrial countries, what they mean, in my view, predominantly white countries, uh, areas of the world that have mostly white people. Uh, Why the maternal mortality rate is so high, in my view, is because there are so many black people here. I've presented that same logic when I've talked about uh, just any sort of public services, uh, why we don't have universal health care here, which directly impacts maternal mortality rates. I said it's because there are substantially higher number of black people than if you want to think about Canada, uh, France. England, a substantially higher number of black people and whites are not about to offer phenomenal services uh, for Negroes uh, here so that black females can be healthy and have uh, rear great healthy black children. I thought that was really important. In fact, a white person wrote a whole book about how the uh, welfare system uh, in the United States is really really bad and has been for decades because of racism specifically because exactly what i said high number of black people we don't want to have good services for the negros continuing
16: moving out your neighborhood but i walk through the ghetto and the flavor's good little kids jumping on me, but you you want to be white and corn living way out nigga go home spray painted on your house
2: A new study suggests that African Americans can lower their blood pressure by moving to more racially mixed neighborhoods. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has more on this research published today in JAMA Internal Medicine.
17: African Americans are more likely than whites to get high blood pressure, which is a big time cause of heart attacks and strokes. So, Kiari Kershaw of Northwestern University decided to test a theory.
9: Does moving from a highly segregated neighborhood to a less segregated neighborhood Result in a lowering of your blood pressure? That was the main interesting, exciting question that we wanted to answer.
17: So Kershaw's team followed more than 2,000 African Americans living in Birmingham, Chicago, Minneapolis, and Oakland, starting in 1985 when they were 18 to 30 years old, to see what happened to those who moved to more integrated places.
9: We saw that their blood pressures dropped
17: a lot. Their systolic blood pressure, the first number you get when you go to the doctor, fell by one to five points.
9: I think it's pretty powerful in the sense that the reasons for their moves were not necessarily for their health, but it has these other added benefits.
17: Now, the drop in blood pressure may sound small, but Kershaw says it's easily enough to translate into thousands of fewer heart attacks and strokes. The study couldn't pinpoint why getting away from segregation may help someone's blood pressure, but Kershaw has some ideas.
9: There's a decent-sized body of evidence relating stress to blood pressure, and that's one pathway that we hypothesize that segregation influences health through um, exposure to violence, things like that, that could increase your stress level and then potentially influence blood pressure.
17: And Kershaw thinks it's probably not just being exposed to less violence in their new, more racially diverse neighborhoods.
9: It's possible that they were exposed to neighborhoods with more economic investment and prospects for their children, access to better schools. These moves could result in improvements in their housing values, which could also improve their outlook.
17: And they could have easier access to things that help them live healthier lives, like sidewalks, parks, gyms, grocery stores with fresh produce, or pharmacies to buy blood pressure drugs.
9: The take-home message is that policies that can allow people who are living in segregated neighborhoods to move has some spillover effects that influences health like blood pressure.
17: Other experts agree. David Goff is a heart disease expert at the National Institutes of Health.
3: The big message here is that this study shines a light on one of the root causes of heart disease and stroke in our country. This tells us that there's something going on there that we need to understand better and we need to address if we hope to reduce the risk of heart disease and stroke and especially reduce that risk in the populations with the highest risk for heart disease
17: and stroke. Maybe segregated places could be improved to reduce blood pressure by doing things like building more parks and better grocery stores. But Ashish Jha of the Harvard Chan School of Public Health says the biggest thing that could be done would be to eliminate segregation.
0: This study is really important because it helps us really feel much more confident that there is something about segregation itself that's leading to worse health outcomes. And this study says that we really do have to tackle segregation if we're going to
15: really improve the health of minorities in America.
17: Rob Stein, NPR News. As your body grows bigger. your mind must flower. It's great
18: to learn, because knowledge is power. Rocking, but you on your
2: This is the day in 1954 that the Supreme Court issued its famous ruling desegregating schools, Brown versus Board of Education. Today, schools remain largely segregated, and the author Richard Rothstein argues that's because housing is segregated. Even today, black and white people generally don't live in the same neighborhoods. Rothstein's new book is called The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So the basic argument of your book is that while racist individuals might have contributed to housing segregation in specific cases, there was an overwhelming amount of government policy at the state, local and federal level that explicitly forced black people to live in different places from white people. And I have to admit that reading this book, the geographic scope, the longevity, the sheer creativity of these policies really took me by surprise. It takes many people by surprise. This whole history has been forgotten. It used
19: to be well-known. There was nothing hidden about it. The federal government pursued two important policies in the mid-20th century that segregated metropolitan areas. One was the first civilian public housing program, which frequently demolished integrated neighborhoods in order to create segregated public housing. The second program that the federal government pursued was to subsidize the development of suburbs on a condition that they be only sold to white families and that the homes in those suburbs had deeds that prohibited resale to African-Americans. These two policies work together to segregate metropolitan areas in ways that they otherwise would never have been segregated.
2: The book gives so many different examples of how this played out. And one of the worst offenders is the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration, Explain why this one government agency has so much influence over where people live and what the FHA did to prevent black people from buying and owning homes.
19: Perhaps the best known example is Levittown, just east of New York City, but there were subdivisions like this all over the country. What the federal government did in the 1940s and 50s, came to a developer like Levitt, the Levitt family that built Levittown. That family could never have assembled the capital necessary to build 17,000 homes on its own. What the federal government did, the FHA, is guarantee bank loans for construction and development to Levittown on condition that no homes be sold to African Americans and that every home have a clause in its deed prohibiting resale to African Americans.
2: The FHA policies here were not merely incentives or encouragements. You tell the story of progressive, idealistic developers who wanted to build integrated housing communities and were absolutely unable to do so. And we're not just talking about in the Deep South here. We're
19: not talking about the Deep South at all. We're talking of the North, the West, the Midwest. The great American novelist Wallace Stegner got a job right after World War II at Stanford University – There was an enormous civilian housing shortage. He joined and and helped to lead a cooperative of 400 families who bought a large tract outside Stanford University where they wanted to build single-family homes. The FHA refused to insure those homes, refused to provide the capital for construction because the 400-member cooperative had three African-American members. The cooperative tried to resist the FHA's demand, promising the FHA that the number of African-Americans in the cooperative wouldn't exceed the percentage of African-Americans in California as a whole. The FHA refused that compromise. Finally, the cooperative had to disband because they couldn't go ahead with the project. They sold the land to a private developer who, with FHA guarantees, built single-family homes with racially exclusive deeds.
2: Your book also explains one way in which black neighborhoods became undesirable. You describe zoning laws in which black parts of town were officially zoned for industrial plants, waste disposal, other things that we would consider a blight. And meanwhile, those businesses were explicitly kept out of white neighborhoods in the same cities.
19: Yes, there are examples in St. Louis and Los Angeles, neighborhoods that once they had African-American residents were rezoned to permit industrial and toxic uses. Those rezonings turned those neighborhoods into slums. White families uh, outside those neighborhoods looked upon the neighborhoods, saw slums, and concluded that African-Americans were slum dwellers and that they moved into their neighborhoods, into the white neighborhoods, they would bring those conditions with them.
2: Why were all of these policies put in place? Was it just overt racism on the part of policymakers? What actually was the motivation?
19: Well, that's very hard to know. And one thing that should be remembered is that it can't be blamed simply on the standards of the time because there were people who dissented. People did know better, but they had other priorities and they caved in to a private prejudice in some of their constituents. They themselves were prejudiced. It was uh, assumptions about racial superiority, but it also was cowardice in not confronting popular views about racial
2: superiority. So as you lay out this history, these segregationist, discriminatory, harmful structures were built over the first half of the 20th century. And then Congress passes the Fair Housing Act in 1968, which says many of those practices were illegal, unconstitutional, and they stop, for the most part, the worst ones. Why doesn't that solve the problem?
19: Well, because all the Fair Housing Act could do was prohibit future discrimination. But by the time the Fair Housing Act was passed, the patterns of segregation had been firmly established. Simply passing a Fair Housing Act did not enable African Americans who were previously living in urban areas to relocate to the suburbs from which they'd been excluded. I gave the example earlier of Levittown in 1947-48 when those homes were billed with a racially restrictive policy. Those homes sold for about $8,000 a piece or $100,000 more or less in, in today's currency. African-Americans, working-class families could have bought those homes. Today, though, those homes sell for $300,000, $400,000. They're no longer affordable to working-class families in the ensuing two generations, the white families who moved into those homes gained that $200,000, 300000 in equity appreciation. African Americans living in rented apartments prohibited from moving to the suburbs gained none of that appreciation. The result is that today, nationwide, African American incomes on average are about 60% of white incomes, but African American wealth is about 5 to 7% of white wealth. That enormous difference is almost entirely attributable to unconstitutional federal housing policy practiced in the mid-20th century.
2: The current Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, has criticized what he calls social engineering programs that are meant to help black homeowners or renters. It sounds as though you're arguing that the first two-thirds of the 20th century were social engineering to harm black people in homeownership and that maybe it will require some social engineering to undo that harm.
19: Yes, what I tell Secretary Carson is that the reforms that he's criticizing are an attempt to undo social engineering. Clearly, he's right that when you try to engineer... Social policy, the way that is necessary to reverse segregation, there are some unintended consequences. There will be prices to be paid, but those prices are small compared to the costs of the social engineering that was conducted in the first two thirds of the 20th century by the federal government. And it's a price that we have to pay to rectify a serious constitutional violation.
2: Richard Rothstein is with the Economic Policy Institute and the Thurgood Marshall Institute of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. His new book is The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. Thank you so much. Thank you.
12: Why haven't you learned anything? A
19: racist flyer that's making the rounds right now in the lewiston porter School District in Niagara County. It endorses two candidates for school board ahead of the election set for next week. But both of these candidates tell 7 Eyewitness News reporter Josh Bazan today they had absolutely nothing to do with this.
2: I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what
1: was
3: written on the paper. Um, I was just disgusted.
1: Lewiston state Porter state Superintendent Paul Cassari is talking state. about this flyer that he says first started circulating the school community Thursday. It calls to keep Luport white and says the effort to keep blacks out of your community begins by keeping them out of the classroom.
2: It's not what we are about. It's 180 degrees from who we are. We, we embrace diversity. We celebrate tolerance. The disturbing flyer
1: endorses two candidates for loopport school board, Betty Vandenbosch Warwick and Sarah Roat Wechter. Both say reading their names on the propaganda came as a shock.
20: Caught off guard by the fact that anything had been delivered. And of course, the first thing that you absolutely feel is you have a big pit a big sinking feeling in your gut
1: lewiston police are investigating and say there's no connection to different racially charged flyers that circulated the area in march
6: this seems to be more of a focused um effort to either defame or to, to to bring some discredit to these people that are involved more than an ideology that's trying to be spread it,
14: that is the most disgusting thing i've ever read I, it It's just, it kills me that that has been put out in our community, that anyone in our community would think that way. I I really don't believe anyone in our community thinks that way.
21: And of course, it would be something that
14: I would absolutely not want that endorsement because it goes against everything
20: that I am and everything that I believe in.
1: The district and both candidates are considering legal action if they find out who distributed these flyers. In Lewiston, Josh Bazan, 7 Eyewitness News. Uh,
3: I don't want us to lose sight that things
15: are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha uh, and I listen to their friends and I see them interact, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country.
1: Disturbing video has, has gone viral and involves local high school students.
22: It shows a Coronado student screaming racial slurs at another student on a bus. Fox 5's Kathleen Jacob is live outside Coronado High School. She talked to kids and parents there. Kathleen.
23: Christine John the school is taking racism very seriously. Tomorrow Coronado High is actually holding a symposium to discuss this incident and racism as a whole. Today I talked to parents and students and after seeing this video they're glad that this is being addressed. Wow. That's the video that has everyone riled up. Today, I talked to dozens of students, and all of them only, or all of them except for one person, had not seen it yet. So, or had seen it yet. I'm sorry. So, it quickly made its way around social media. Out of the ones that had seen this, all reacted with disappointment and disgust. It kind
24: of hurt seeing that that um, was getting around, and people are going to think badly of us now because of that.
17: I just saw it, and it was just like so vulgar, and. I didn't, but then again, I don't know what happened before, what to cause her to say that or happened after. I was disgusted by it.
23: Students I talked to are glad about tomorrow's symposium. They say it's something that needs to be addressed, and they all share a little responsibility in making this community a better, more tolerant place. As for the students in the video, we asked the school district what happened to them, if there's any punishment, any suspensions. They said that they could not comment specifically on suspensions because of student privacy. Reporting live, Kathleen Jacob, Fox 5 News, local Las Vegas. All right, Kathleen, thank you. If I I was
10: white, I'd be better off.
14: Isn't that
6: true? More than 100,000 public school students in North Carolina missed out on classroom time in 2015 and 2016 because of suspensions. And when you add it up, these students missed more than one million days from their suspensions alone. And a new report out today shows the number of short-term suspensions for students is on the rise. Ricky Watson, Jr. is co-director of the Youth Justice Project of the Southern Coalition for Social Justice. They assembled the report, and Ricky is with us now. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Tell us more. Your organization went through some numbers that had been released earlier by the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction, and you were looking for some bigger trends. What are some of the big trends that you followed uh, found
0: as you sifted through these numbers? So essentially, some of the biggest trends that we noticed is that from about the 2007-2008 school year to uh, about 2013-2014 school year, uh, suspension numbers were down. Um, those numbers were down, uh, for example, in 2007 um, at, at their highest um, they were at about 308000 um, for short-term suspensions. And what? Uh, um, forgive me for interrupting. What is a short-term? Is a short-term suspension is essentially a suspension that's less than 10 days. Okay. Um, that actually has some implications for due process rights that a young person uh, is entitled to. Uh, if it's uh, under 10-day suspension, they don't necessarily have to have a hearing. Um, but if it's uh, over 10 days and it's a long-term suspension, then they're guaranteed some of those rights that allow them to have a hearing and opportunity to be heard. All right. So you saw it. So there was a decline. It begins in 2007. It goes through 2013. And then the trend changes. That's right. Um, What what we've seen is that those numbers are back up with the 2015-2016 school year. Um, As you stated, uh, and the big takeaway from this report is that 100,000 students in North Carolina missed over a million combined days of classroom Mm -hmm. instruction as a result of suspensions in the 2015-2016 school year.
6: And the increase is in those short-term suspensions, right? That's correct. And in fact, the long-term suspensions from 10 days to expulsion, have they declined a little bit?
0: Those numbers have consistently (laughs) declined since the 2007-2008 Uh, school year. um, But, you know, the concern is that those numbers will also start to creep back up.
6: And you've noticed a disparity in who gets suspended, right?
0: Yes. Unfortunately, um, the types of students that we're seeing that are most directly impacted and affected by um, these numbers, uh, it's uh, disproportionately male students, um, African-American students, and students with disabilities. Um, they're suspended and expelled from North Carolina schools at a disproportionate rate, and it's consistent with the same children that we see are most likely to get involved in the school-to-prison pipeline and end up in juvenile and adult court. What, what are the, to give us a sense of the, of the ratios or how out of whack this is. So black students make up over half of all suspensions in North Carolina, um, despite making up only about 25 percent of the student population here in North Carolina. All right, so what's going on there? Um, there are a lot of different reasons, uh, you know, the increase now, we, we, believe there are a variety of different reasons, like implicit bias, um, a lack of teachers with experience and resources to address behavior, um, also, lack of minority teachers in the classroom. There's actually a study that was just released by Johns Hopkins University that found that low-income black students, if they had just one black teacher in grades three through five, were more likely to graduate. Mm. Um, that's a powerful number, and that's a very new study that came out just this month. But um, there are a lot of different reasons as to why we're seeing Well, you
6: talk case. about the resources, too. Uh, one of the things that's happened while we've seen a teacher pay in the last couple of years uh, increase The fact is that per-pupil spending is just about flat, and in some ways you could say even less than it was uh, before 2008 uh, when you consider the increase in the number of students. So we're spending less per student, meaning that teachers have just a harder time in the classroom managing everything.
0: Absolutely, and I think it's important to preface and state that, you know, we fully support public schools and we want to do what we can to help improve them. Um, And none of this report is meant to be an attack on public schools, but we also understand that North Carolina public schools are under attack right now um, we also understand there's a lack of resources in public schools. When you see uh, budget amendments being passed at three o'clock in the morning um, that are targeting spending on education, um, it's concerning and it's devastating to public education um, we're talking about children, we're talking about young people, and we're talking about um, making sure that you know schools and children are never a bipartisan issue.
6: Can you a, understand a partisan, a partisan, issue, partisan issue? Can you uh, give us a sense of how that would play out in terms of discipline and suspensions? I mean, uh, again, you, uh, the idea that somehow the increase in the number of suspensions could be linked to the to the sh- to shrinking per capita spending or per pupil spending that we've seen over the last seven years in the state of North Carolina, uh, pulling back money out of the school system, th- why would that have an impact on suspensions? Well,
0: think about it. Um, what? How do you address and how do you handle um, issues if you don't have the resources to you know adequately address them? Um, we understand and know that teachers need uh, training. Um, they need. Uh, alternatives to suspension, they need uh, policy changes, they need interventions that are positive positive. Um, and if they don't have resources and funding to do that, it's gonna make it really hard to be in a classroom and teach and educate. Alright, and you talked too about the experience and trying to keep
6: experienced teachers and, and all of that. Part of it is pay but also again the other resources, class size is gonna make a difference, Absolutely. textbooks are gonna make a difference and if you cut funding for textbooks and if you cut funding for resources and if you cut funding for art and and uh, other activities that help explore a child's total being, um, this is gonna have an impact on, on a teacher's desire to stay in a system. What about the link, you mentioned it earlier, this link between uh, suspensions and contact with our penal system?
0: Yeah, so that really refers to uh, a bigger problem Um, of the school to prison pipeline. So essentially that's uh, a vicious cycle that starts with a youth kind of getting into trouble in school. Um, Unfortunately, oftentimes that punishment will consist of some combination of being suspended and then expelled from school um, and a loss of class time, essentially. Um, That's often also accompanied with some form of referral to a court system, whether that be juvenile or adult. Um, Missing class time results in academic failure and an inability to really catch up. And unfortunately, we happen to be in a state like North Carolina, which is the only state left in the country that automatically prosecutes 16-year-olds as adults in the criminal system.
6: And it's a pretty clear coalition, uh, correlation, I should say, between the number of days you've been suspended, the amount of time you spend out of school, and the likelihood that you're going to find yourself before a judge uh, before your 20th birthday.
0: Absolutely. Um, unsupervised children and are uns- unserved children, right? Um, so when you're out of school, you're not receiving that valuable instruction time that uh, makes you want to be in school. It makes you want to learn. And um, we need to start figuring out and identifying some alternatives to suspension.
6: Right, you talked about, again, we'll take a look at some of the disproportions here uh, and the disparities. African-American students, you talked about uh, who's teaching in those schools, implicit bias, which has been demonstrated over and over again in our school system. And when it's, interestingly enough, in those school systems that have taken it seriously, they found ways to address implicit bias. Teachers and administrators have been grateful for for, for learning this and moving forward. And coming out with better numbers. Implicit bias, uh, who's in the, who's in the classroom? What are some other reasons? And also, you talked about uh, students with disabilities. Why are they
0: disproportionately suspended? What's happening there? Well, uh, unfortunately, those same students with disabilities are the same ones that we're seeing being referred to court systems as well. Um, I think that bigger picture and generally, you know, we saw a decrease in these numbers for suspensions and expulsions um, due to a growing public consensus that suspension suspensions weren't effective and that they didn't work and that uh, there was an increase understanding of the harm that was caused by suspensions um, and pressure by advocates at the local level. I think that um, when people started to notice those numbers dipping, um, they kind of got comfortable. And unfortunately, I think that's why we're back in this position where we're seeing those numbers creep back up. But what about long-term suspensions? Why do you think those numbers continue to decline? Um, I, th- I think that unfortunately, there there is the aspect of due process being a concern, right? Um, so we talk about the difference between short-term and long-term suspensions. And for long-term term suspensions, you're entitled to have a hearing as a student. Um, that means you're given due process and the ability to kind of uh, have a hearing and discuss and talk about exactly why that student may or may not need to be suspended. Um, under short-term suspensions, that doesn't happen. So it's just an easier thing to do. You can do that for
6: 10 days, and there might be multiple suspensions for one student
0: Absolutely. over a period Absolutely. Of time, so we talk about that one million number, and we're talking about only 100,000 of those students. So essentially they have been suspended multiple times because
6: again if most of them a number of them are 10 days or less you can do the math oh now you
0: were one lucky nigger you better listen to your
6: boss white boy oh i'm gonna go walking in the moonlight with you you want to hold my hand
22: <laughs> good evening and thanks for joining us i'm carla castillo
1: and i'm rusty sarat a texas a&m professor says his life has been threatened. For the first time today, Dr. Tommy Curry has released public statements about his controversial comments that he made during a podcast interview almost five years ago. And in that interview, he made reference to an actor's comments about, quote, killing white people. Since then, there have been calls for the professor's resignation, but others have stepped in to say that his comments have been taken out of context.
22: Context. Context.
19: Context.
1: Context.
22: Looking at behavior in context. Dr. Curry has declined to speak with us on camera, but he did agree to answer some questions that were emailed to him by News 3's Jessica Grunling. Jessica?
24: Dr. Tommy Curry says after his comments went viral this week, his, he's been receiving death threats. In a Facebook post today, Curry said he's been threatened to be lynched and mutilated by white supremacists. He did tell me that all of those threats have been turned over to the authorities. Earle, earlier this week, Texas A&M President Michael Young released a letter to the student body that called Curry's comments disturbing. But Curry says he has not heard from the president or any administrator since all this has happened. He went on to say, I believe that Young's letter has firmly demonstrated where he and many Aggies get their news. The only venue suggesting that I am advocating violence are websites run by known white supremacists and felons. Some people have called for Curry's job. He said he has no intention of resigning or believing his tenure is in jeopardy as of yet. We asked Curry a number of questions. We are posting all of his answers unedited to this story online at kbtx.com. Carry me back
6: to old Virginia There's where the cotton and the corn and taters grow There's where the birds warble sweet in the springtime There's where the old dark is hard and long to go There's where I labored so hard for old Massa corn no place on earth do i love more sincerely than virginia the state where i was born
22: new tonight at 630 the mayor of charlottesville is responding after a large group of protesters gathered at lee park last night the group is protesting the decision to remove confederate monuments from the city well, the crowd held up torches as they stood near the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. Our sister station in Charlottesville reports people were heard chanting, You will not replace us. Russia is our friend and blood and soil. The crowd broke up after a fight and police arrived at the scene. Mayor Mike Singer released this statement that reads in part... This event involving torches at night in Lee Park was either profoundly ignorant or was designed to instill fear in our minority populations in a way that harkens back to the days of the KKK. So he went on to say, either way, as mayor of this city, I want everyone to know this. We reject this intimidation. We are a welcoming city, but such intolerance is not welcome here. The protest comes ahead of Monday's city council meeting where councilors are expected to decide the remaining recommendations from the Blue Ribbon Commission.
18: In the past month, New Orleans has removed a couple different statues that celebrated moments of the Confederacy on the grounds that we need not have such edifices in order to remember our racist history. And over the weekend in Charlottesville, we learned exactly why keeping these things around is harmful. A group of white nationalists, aka supremacists, gathered in front of a Robert E. Lee statue Saturday night chanting, You will not replace us, and Russia is our friend. Then, in a moment channeling some of the darkest times this nation has ever seen, they gathered after dark with lit torches in a stand of solidarity. If you've seen the images, it is frightening. Yeah, we don't need demonstrations that resemble the KKK rallies in order to properly remember what was once a truly horrendous place. If it's about heritage, not hate, why go straight to the tactics of those who push the ladder? Maybe because that premise is a crock of nonsense to begin with. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take. There's
6: where this old
15: dark is hard and long to go.
25: Lumiya Abu-Jamal joins us today by phone from the SCI Mahoney State Prison in Frackville, Pennsylvania. He has published seven books in prison, including his searing and best-selling Live from Death Row, which Dick Gregory says single-handedly brought dignity to the whole Death Row. His voice is a continuum of the black prophetic fire of David Walker, Nat Turner, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, and Malcolm X. So Mumia, I want to ask you about this neo-slave narrative that you write about on live on death row from death row, uh, and how black radicals like you who counter that narrative, why it's so incendiary to the state?
26: And, and what's necessary for the state is the illusion of normality, regularity. So uh, you know. Think about this. In Rome, uh what the emperors needed was bread and circuses. Uh in America, what we need is uh, housewives of Atlanta. Uh we need sports. And we need um, you know, uh these uh, moral stories of good cops and evil people. And uh because you have that. Because you really have what you know perfectly, having read your books, you know that you know, there is no critical thinking in the United States in this period. You have emotion, right? And if I can get right. you to look at someone who's demonized, then I can do anything. I can do anything. And uh, that's how the state works. By demonizing people and then putting them in places where they're virtually invisible.
25: You write in the book about how that this kind of neo-slave narrative, it, it sells because it gives the false illusion that there's somehow escape from the system, that, that no one is absolutely guilty, nor are the oppressed, the slave, the prisoner, absolutely guiltless.
26: Right, exactly. And here's the, here's the, here's the reality. America has never come to grips with what a lot of scholars and thinkers call its original sin and that's because it never stopped happening. Think about this. This country that, uh, you know, brags about being founded on freedom was founded on slavery, was founded on Holocaust, was founded on genocide. And after slavery ended, after the Constitution was rewritten and amended, and we had the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendments, well, what did the South do? They ignored it for a century. You know, there were few bright years, Reconstruction, and then there was Redemption, where that was destroyed. And it isn't until the 60s that you see this deep, rich emergence of people fighting for rights that were enshrined in the Constitution a century before. That's because every state in the South And many states in the U.S. were allowed to make exceptions to the Constitution, those exceptions when it came to black people. And we've learned that that's not just the Southern reality. You can't talk about AEDTA, the so-called anti-terrorism death penalty, unless you have the same mindset that makes the Constitution an exceptional document. Uh, only this is a call to from to Pennsylvania State
20: Correctional school, Institution, Mahanoy. The
26: this call is subject to and reporting and the That's what we have. And we have the same thing with a different name. In 1968,
25: I think it was, when George Wallace was running for president, he held a rally in Philadelphia, and you were 14 at the time. You attended that rally with three of your friends uh, and it it was right out of a I mean it was out of a Trump reality a Trump rally. Can you explain what took place?
26: We had the illusion of freedom. So this was our city. We were born and raised there. We went down to what's called the Spectrum, and you know, like <laughs> it sounds silly now, but you know, imagine five or six, you know, young teenage boys shouting "Black Power" in the middle of a. Wallace for president.
25: Okay, sadly. I'm not going to let you stop there because you were also shouting Ungawa.
26: Ungawa, <laughs> um, black power. It sounded, you know, rhythmic. It sounded sexy. Right. Well,
25: you said we didn't know um, what it meant, but it began, had a hell of a ring to it.
26: <laughs> yeah, it sounded good. I mean, I still don't know what it means, but, you know, it okay. sounded good. Well, people began spitting at us, uh, people began uh, ripping flags from their sticks and throwing sticks at us. And just, you know, just hollering at us and shouting at us. Well, some police came and other security, and they escorted us out, and we thought, hey, well, you know, we had a little fun, and we, you know, our voices were heard, and we went to the bus stop. And um, two or three of us were on the bus, a young guy named Alvin and a guy named Eddie. And I was like, I'm usually the slowest, so I was behind them. A guy walked up and hit me with a blackjack, and knocked me down and pulled Eddie and pulled Alvin off the buses and we were getting our asses kicked Um, it never dawned on us that these were cops because you can't just walk up and beat people up well I remember seeing a cop's leg walk by and I said help, help police and the guy looked at me looked down at me and he walked over and he kicked me right in the face then it dawned on me that all of these guys were cops and uh, that was uh, a little taste of Rizzo, a little taste of Philadelphia, and an introduction to Trump. Uh, we see it today. I mean, I, I can hear Trump saying, you know, yeah, beat the hell out of him. In the old days, well, I lived in those days. They weren't good days. They were ugly days, and they're ugly days today. Listen, I'm on another brother's time. Chris, I got to go. I love you all. Uh, I okay, really great to hear your voice. All right. On the move, y'all.
25: You're an inspiration to us all.
26: As are you, sir. New York, New York.
27: New York could become the first state to use a device being called a textilizer, like a breathalyzer, only it would test phones at crash sites, not to see content, but just to see if a driver used the phone just before the accident. Other states are also considering the devices, but as we'll hear, there are concerns about drivers' rights. Let's bring in Ben Lieberman. He's been working on developing the textilizer with an Israeli company while New York considers using it. Ben's 19-year-old son, Evan, was killed six years ago, a passenger in a car that crashed while the driver was texting, he joins us by Skype and Ben, terrible loss, so sorry
5: Thank you, I appreciate you saying that Um, it means a lot
27: And you know that the driver was texting because you had to launch a lawsuit and spend months in court to find that out
5: yeah, it was uh, it was a difficult process. After any kind of crash, there's, there's always some sort of a uh, suit to get a hold of um, the different uh, insurance proceeds, and uh, I wouldn't settle the case until I got a hold of the cell phone records.
27: Yeah, but you had to get warrants and, and such to do that. What are you talking about with the law that New York is considering and this device? What would it do?
5: Well, what the law would do would it allow police to use technology that we've developed that would allow the police to... Uh, at the scene of a crash to be able to determine uh, whether somebody was actively using uh, the device illegally. That's a key area that's missing right now.
27: Well, people are very surprised when they hear this. They think there's laws against texting and driving. So naturally, if you're stopped or if an officer sees you, thinks you're texting, you can be pulled over. But what? Can you not just take someone's Mm -hmm. phone now?
19: Yeah, that's the
5: biggest misconception that's out there. And I'm not going to say that I didn't have the same misconception. You know, I learned the hard way. When you hear so much about distracted driving and how bad it is and how prevalent it is, you would assume that common sense is dictating that this is going on. But it's absolutely not. And, and, you know, when I speak at schools, I bring up a statistic from 2014, where there were 258,000 crashes in the year 2014. I'm talking about New York State. And I ask the crowd, how many of those do you think were reported as texting and driving? And the answers I get are anywhere from a third to a half. And the answer is Because the answer is only 64 people. And that's because while a police officer can see somebody texting while they're driving, when it comes to a crash, they can't do anything about it unless there's an eyewitness or an unlikely confession.
27: Or like you, somebody goes and, and gets warrants to get access to the contents of a phone. Look, why not just rely on that? You know there are concerns that this device, although the device maker says that it will not collect data at all, it will only show that the phone's been used and then... That gives the police or the courts the right to go and get a warrant. But since there are concerns about privacy rights, why not just stay with the current system of getting the warrants and going through the courts?
5: Phone records are completely obsolete right now for the problem that exists. Sending a simple email, which is a very likely candidate for a distracted driving crash, That doesn't show up in a phone record, nor does social media and all the activity that's going on on Facebook and Snapchat and that. Browsing the web, app use, Pokemon Go, taking selfies. That's not showing up in phone records anyway.
27: So you're saying what what your device would do is enable people to see the phone was used.
5: It's going to capture typing and swiping. And it it could also determine illegal typing and swiping versus legal Bluetooth and voice activation. So the idea is to have an efficient but very respectful investigation.
27: That's Ben Lieberman. His son was killed by a driver who was texting. And Ben now co-runs an organization called Dorks. It stands for Distracted Operators Risk Casualties Have Come Up With a Device. New York State is considering a law that would allow the use of that device. Ben, thank you so much. We're going to stay with this. Thank you.
5: Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
27: Well, let's just bring in for a couple of minutes Donna Lieberman, no relation. Uh, She's executive director of the New York Civil Liberties Union. And Donna, we know that uh, the union and others are objecting to this notion that somebody might be able to get data from phones. But Ben swears that that will not happen. It will just show usage and you can later go for a warrant uh, to see more. Um, What's wrong with that?
28: Well, you know, what this legislation would do is require all drivers to turn over their cell phones uh, when asked by an officer at the scene of a traffic accident. And at risk of losing your license for a year and incurring a fine, that means that people who have done absolutely nothing wrong, have not engaged in distracted driving, will be subject to punishment.
27: But if these things become like breathalyzers, we know what they are, it's a textilizer, and all it's doing is showing if there's usage at the moment or up to the crash, isn't that worth the few seconds that you might have sitting in the car there if you know you didn't use Well, first of
28: all, the technology that is being mandated and assumed exists has actually never been field tested. And there's actually never been any showing that it is so limited. But the information that is sought is readily available to the police or to a litigant based on a warrant or a subpoena. So why go around the warrant requirement for, with a, uh, an invasion of privacy when it's not necessary. Nothing about this law will do what we really want to have done, which is to stop distracted driving. We have to adopt measures that don't just feel good to us, but that are effective in reducing the incidence of distracted driving.
27: That's Donna Lieberman, executive director of the New York Civil Liberties Union. We will continue following both sides of this debate. Donna, thank you. Thank you.
18: This is why I've always wanted to be a cop, so I can criminalize the gate in your stroll, the shade in your mold, and take a toll. A displaced dark face as safe as an ace in a hole for a cop. As good as I, book a book of guy, we crooked drinking crocodile. Don't resist a pit pie. You think I won't, but why wouldn't I? I'm a cop.
2: Over the last few years, many white police officers have shot unarmed black victims and wound up in the news or in court. In Tulsa yesterday, one of those officers was acquitted. Tulsa police officer Betty Shelby was on trial for fatally shooting 40-year-old Terrence Crutcher back in September. Matt Trotter of member station KWGS was at the courthouse and joins us now. Welcome. Hi, Ari. Remind us of the circumstances surrounding this shooting.
21: So Shelby came across Terrence Crutcher with his SUV stalled in the middle of a Tulsa street. She was trying to figure out what was going on there. She noticed that uh, Crutcher was acting strangely, and she believed maybe he was under the influence of PCP. She gave him orders to get on the ground. He wouldn't comply with those. Instead, he walked away from her with his hands in the air while she had a gun pointed at him. And Shelby says when Crutcher reached inside his car window for what she believed was a gun. She shot him. What was the case that the defense made for why the officer killed Crutcher? The case they made was Shelby believed Terrence Crutcher was reaching into his car to get a gun. Now, no weapon was found, but what the defense told the jury is that Shelby's training is basically she needs to act instead of react that if she waits too long and waits to see a gun before shooting, she could be dead. Is the police department reevaluating
2: that training? Not that I'm aware of. We have some reaction tape from Crutcher's father, the Reverend Joey Crutcher, speaking outside of the courtroom. Let's listen to this.
15: Let it be known that I believe in my heart that Betty Shelby got away with
2: murder. Yeah. And I don't. Know Matt Trotter, does that I... reflect a larger sentiment within the community?
21: I think it depends on who you ask. Betty Shelby certainly had her own group of supporters. You know, they stood outside the courthouse with I stand with Betty banners and were in the courtroom with wristbands and stuff. But, yes, there is a significant part of Tulsa that believes Betty Shelby should have been convicted. The mayor gave a news conference saying that he respected the
2: jury's decision, but the racial divide in Tulsa needs to be addressed. Uh, What does he mean by that?
21: Well, Mayor G.C. Bynum basically ran on a platform saying that he recognized a racial disparity in a lot of areas of Tulsa from a life expectancy gap between the north parts of Tulsa where more black people live and the south parts where more affluent white people live, transportation, other sorts of services. So he's – launched several initiatives or tried to launch several initiatives to help fix some of that. Um, He is white, we should say. He is white, yes. And today's news conference was an acknowledgement that those efforts need to continue. Do you expect this is the end or what happens from here? Well, there's no further action that's been announced from the family, either embarking on going after those police department reforms or a civil suit I haven't heard anything about further protests as of now. Um, The police chief also announced during today's news conference with the mayor that they're evaluating Betty Shelby's status with the Tulsa Police Department. It's not certain that she's going to come back. That's a decision that's going to be made, he said, in the near future, but a specific timeline hasn't been given. Matt Trotter of member station KWGS in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thanks a lot. You're welcome.
3: Mama says police shoot black people.
13: Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Uh, is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that
6: true? Parents of a black teenage boy killed in the police involved shooting in Texas want the officer to be held accountable. Former Balch Springs police officer Roy Oliver who is white is charged with murder. He is accused of shooting and killing 15-year-old Jordan Edwards in April as the teenager left a party. The Justice Department has also launched an investigation. The Edwards family spoke to our Omar Villafranca in their first television interview. Omar is outside the Balt Springs Police Department. Omar, good morning.
16: Good morning, Charmaine and Odell Edwards say their son Jordan was an honor student. He loved football and had a bright future. It has been almost three weeks since the incident, but Charmaine has not gone back to church because that would require her to drive by the spot where her son was killed.
10: I go in his room and I'm waiting on him to walk through the door. Like, to have my last, for him to say, bye, I'm, I'm gone, it's like, it's never gonna happen.
16: For Charmaine and Odell Edwards, the death of their 15-year-old son, Jordan, does not seem real. I'll have his pictures now throughout the house on my phone. You saved the pictures on your phone? Yes. Yes. Every day I look at the pictures. And I just wish I could see it. According to the arrest warrant for Bulk Springs Police Officer Roy Oliver, on April 29th, he shot and killed the teenager outside a house party. Jordan, his two brothers, and two friends were driving away in a car. Oliver allegedly fired multiple shots into the sedan, after unsuccessfully trying to get them to stop. A bullet struck Jordan in the head as he sat in the front passenger seat next to his 16-year-old stepbrother, Vidal. You're in the car. Have you replayed that moment in your head? Every night, can't even sleep. What do you do to, to kind of just breathe? I pray. What do you pray for? Peace in my heart and get rid of my anger. Their oldest brother, Kevon, was in the back seat when he saw Jordan slumped over. You're 17. What goes through your mind when you see your brother? I was angry. I didn't expect
5: for it to be him.
16: I do have questions. Bulk Springs Police Chief Jonathan Haber said body camera footage of the incident revealed police behavior that didn't measure up to the department's core values. Oliver was fired on May 2nd. And three days later, after an investigation by the Dallas County Sheriff's Office, he was charged with murder.
10: If the car was leaving the scene and wasn't posing a threat to anyone, why shoot? But you literally shooting like you playing target practice. That's how, in my mind, that's what it's like he was hunting. You use rifles to kill animals. That's what you do. And that's what he
16: did. Following Jordan's shooting, the boys pulled over for help and were confronted by officers who detained them. Before being handcuffed, Vidal says an officer called him the N word and he worried he'd be shot. I thought that that was running through my head. Like I didn't, I'm not going to be able to say goodbye to my parents or my brother that I have. Did you have the same thoughts as Vidal? Yes. In a statement, the Bulk Springs Police Department told CBS News they've reviewed many hours from officers' body cameras and in-car cameras and have not heard any of the officers use the N-word to describe the boys. The Edwards say they want meaningful change, which for them means seeing Oliver locked up. What would you tell Roy Oliver about Jordan? You killed an innocent kid that
15: loved life, that would have made you even smile if you knew him.
16: The family says they don't believe all cops are bad, but they say that cops who break the law need to be held accountable. As for Oliver, he posted his bail and was released, but he has not spoken publicly. Nora?
14: All right, Omar, thanks. This is such a disturbing family. Disturbing story, and I feel for that family. I do too. I mean,
10: listen, nobody believes that all police officers are bad, but it's very difficult when you look at that video. I'm, it's another example of why it's good to have the video mm-hmm. to get the whole story and put it in context, but it's heartbreaking here. I didn't realize that his brothers were in the car either, which either. makes it also very painful
13: to yeah, me. Yeah, traumatic for them.
15: Context of white supremacy. I had an opportunity to hear that final clip uh, a second time where they were talking Uh, about the shooting uh, of Jordan Edwards, uh, where the white announcer, white female announcer at the very end, when she said uh, such a disturbing family, I mean, disturbing uh, event. And I didn't know his, his stepbrother was right there and all that, that that, I think sometimes they might refer to that sort of thing as a Freudian slip. I think that might have just been uh, her, dedication to the system of white supremacy coming through because white people in general, uh, that's how they, what they think about black people. Um, ugh, these Negroes, of, Oh, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to act like I'm concerned that this team was shot. Mm-hmm. yes, yes. Mm. Context of white supremacy compensatory call in. Uh, and she said, they said context at the end of that segment as well context of white supremacy compensatory call-in if you have commentary you would like to share uh things that happened over the last seven days counter racist suggestions views feel free chime in the number six four one seven one five three six four zero the code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate number again 641 715 3640 the code 564943 pound press star 6 if you would like to participate couple quick things before we get to the callers uh, for one we are listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, racism hyphen notes dot com Address again, racism hyphen notes dot com. Uh, when you hit the blog, PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop us an email. Uh, we will get you a physical mailing address. A uh, huge thanks to all the folks who have invested 8 plus years uh, of us broadcasting uh, all because listeners have supported us. I hope the program has been continues to be worthy of your time and energy. Uh, thanks to all the folks who supported, got us things from the Amazon wish list as well. I'm wearing my slippers right now. They are fantastic. Right on a couple uh, quick items uh, to point out. Uh, number one, Pam should be here. Uh, we had to reschedule twice. Uh, I have sent her uh, at least five threatening emails. Uh, If we have to do any more rescheduling, I will be making an unplanned visit to Illinois. Uh, And it's summertime now. Uh, I've told Pam repeatedly I do not do cold weather. And every time that I've been to Chicago, uh, I've never been in the wintertime. Every time I've been to Chicago, it's been spring or summer. It's been cold every time. So (laughs) I can only go to Chicago for like May through uh, August. So I can come right now and get at Pam if she stands us up or messes around. But she says she's clearing out her calendar and she will be here. We are ready to roll this coming Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, looking forward to chatting with uh, one of our favorite guests. Uh, to have her back on the program. It has been uh, too long since we have heard from her. Uh, things I wanted to point out from the clips really quick. The segment this is on NPR and I think some of our listeners saw this report from this week. Uh, I guess just I've stated consistently the system of racism, white supremacy, they are master deceivers. So you have lots of uh, lies. It's very difficult to ascertain what is true in the system of white supremacy. You have to do some thinking. You have to be uh, adept at critical analysis. So on one thing, you have one piece of information that says, Uh, that leaving a quote-unquote segregated neighborhood and going to a quote-unquote more diverse neighborhood, whatever that means, they didn't give quite enough detail, Uh, but going from one to the other is supposed to be better for black people. Somehow I think they might mean if black people move to an area where there are a higher number of white people and or a higher number of non-black people. Uh, The services might be better, schools, amenities, less crime, all the things that they mentioned uh, within that segment. Uh, So you have that bit of information on one hand, which could be true. That makes logical sense. If you move to an area where there are a higher number of white people, you might be less likely to have a Flint situation, maybe. Uh, But we also have Dr. Darren Smith, who said that just being in the presence of whites is bad for the health of black people. So you have to, you know, come to your own conclusion, united independent. Uh, The next thing, uh, when Clinton Yates, who is a black journalist, he writes for the Washington Post and then he does uh, his uh, audio commentary that I play. Sometimes I played the segment today. He was talking about what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, my alma mater, University of Virginia. Uh, He said. Harkening back to the darkest times, talking about these whites, Richard Spencer uh, Spencer was out there leading the charge in Charlottesville about the Confederate monuments. And I thought uh, that's in the word guide to watch the use of, you know, dark is always associated with something vile and evil and wretched. Uh, And I thought, no, harken back to the whitest times. That's what I mean about I don't have a problem with the use of the term white. It just make sure we're using the term correctly. When you use the term correctly, next up, uh, the the segment where the uh, Chris Hedges, the white man who interviewed, suspected race soldier who interviewed Mumia Abu-Jamal, and he, in his open, he uh, referenced Dick Gregory saying that Mumia's work Live from Death Row, which I have read uh, that that work uh, gave dignity to Death Row And I was reminded of Dick Gregory, who's been on this program. I was reminded of Mr. Fuller's commentary about uh, dignity uh, and, you know, what's the difference between a dignified slave and one who is silly. I'm sure folks have heard him bring that up many times. Um, I was reminded also of uh, Jamie, one of our listeners who's also in the Washington, D.C. area. She's called in many times primarily workplace racism. Uh, she said she always appreciates hearing from Mumia, but she commented about the disruption when he was trying to speak. Uh, they would just interrupt and come in. And, this is the Pennsylvania Correctional Facility, and blah, 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 and just total disruption of being able to give out quality information done purposely for, and then you think about the extraordinary number of black people who are in greater confinement, uh continuation of enslaving black people, uh, the number of black people who have to deal with that sort of interruption and, you know, the little bit of time that they have to talk to, you know, family members, children, people that care about them. Uh, I also in that segment from prison, no less <clears throat> Mumia, he said, Uh, I'm on someone else's time. He had to to end abruptly because he was in quotes on someone else's time from prison. Uh, And again, just wow. It stood out as profound for many reasons. Uh, Last thing I'll get in. I think on this program, a number of times we've talked about when we've had white guests and they snicker, at something they find something they just you know start laughing while we're discussing the system of white supremacy and in that segment Chris Hedges suspected race soldier talking to Mumia he asked him about this protest and this term that they used I don't even want to say it but I don't want to say it because he said he didn't know what it meant but Mumia remembered this phrase and he said sounded good don't know what it means and Chris Hedges Oh, he was just cackling, man. I thought that is his white supremacy coming through explicitly in that very moment, just with the laughter. And I think people who listen to this program, man, that's something that you should really pay attention to when you're talking with a white person about a serious matter. And they start laughing, particularly if nothing is funny or did I make a joke? You know what's going on? (laughs) Like, oh, let's let's really pay attention to see what's going on here. But I thought that was so critical and particularly again on this program. That's why I don't do metaphors on this compensatory call in any Saturday. We don't do metaphors because words are so important. Whites like Chris Hedges will continue to cackle at us as long as we do not understand the importance of words. You do not use terms, especially when we're talking about the business of counter-racism. You do not use terms just because they sound good or I enjoy saying them or because they are rhythmic. (laughs) That is child. That's that's why racist man, racist woman, racist child. Man, they will be laughing at us for a long time. No threat at all. As long as that's the way that we think in using words, particularly about racism, you want to have explicit definitions that make logical sense. Again, compensatory call in no metaphors. That is a part of the pa- that is a part of the problem in terms of us not understanding the astronomical significance Of words and definitions, racists, they will use metaphors. That's a big part of how they deceive us. They will compare things, make analogies, similes, where they're comparing things that are not equivalent at all. They do this regularly, and I submit it is a deliberate act of white supremacy. Non white people, we pick up a lot of their behavior patterns. We are still learning Gusty Renegade, first and foremost. Many times when we are attempting to convey a concept or an idea, we will employ a metaphor, hoping that that will accurately convey our thoughts. Often the metaphors, they do not. They just add confusion. And again, frequently things are being compared that are not equivalent. Let's just make sure that we're being explicit, direct, clear about what it is we want to say. I will prompt about the metaphors Uh, with that. uh, If you have commentary line should be open for the first few folks who dialed in the number one more time. Six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. The code five, six, four, nine, four, three pound. Press star six. If you would like to participate. Uh, we'll be here tomorrow. I forgot. Uh, Global Sunday talk on racism, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, we should have lots of folks from different parts of the globe to converse with us. Uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up. Uh, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard?
29: Yes, sir. Thomas
15: in New York. Good to hear from you.
29: Good to hear from you, too, Gus. So good evening. Um, I had a few comments to make on um, the clips. First, um, Amita said, I'm on another brother's time. And I felt that that was kind of strange because you certainly are, are on brother's time. And, um, goes back to you saying, um, don't use brother. Um, definitely. Um, the high blood pressure clip, um, I found it was odd because I know for sure that, um, seems like blacks that live in areas controlled by white people have the highest high blood pressure in the world, um, Say in um Africa, um the only people with the highest blood pressure, um that that, that uh, have abnormally high blood pressure, people who live in South Africa, um and then um you come to the United States, you know black people have the highest blood pressure. I think um, only second to the Aboriginal Australians, and they're under the same um sort of conditioning that we are under. Um, you know just a tidbit I was um. The, the, before the, the basketball game came on at night, they were talking to the Australian black um, basketball player, Patty Mills, and he was um, the whole story about how his mother, uh, who was, had a black mother and a white father, um, was snatched away from her black mother and forced to live with a white family and white foster homes so she could be um, assimilated into whiteness. And um, that, that's just to show, you know, one of the reasons why our blood pressure is so high when we live amongst white people, um, uh, watched the Charles Barkley race program and it was pretty good. And it kind of fit into the clip. Yep, yeah. It kind of fit into the clip, um, with, with, um, uh, where they were talking about the disparity and how they set up, um, um, the living conditions for blacks and put whites in certain areas and wouldn't allow blacks to come back in them. And he did a lot of, um, good work on that, on that show on redlining in Baltimore. And, um, I mean, it was pretty, uh, pretty distinctive how he um, laid it out. And I thought it was very good, especially coming from someone as confused as him. And that's playing out today, um, a part of that clip where they say they put some of the most harmful stuff in the black areas. Uh, here in New York, they want to knock down Rikers Island and um, build small prisons inside of, or small jails into the black areas. And um, um, a lot of people are going to say how that's going to, how that's going to, um, you know, bring down the living conditions in the black area, and they've already started doing that with the shelters. And um, around the corner from me, in an a area that's pretty being pretty regentrified, on a major thoroughfare on 145th Street, they built the um, they built a, a shelter, and um, I mean that whole area has just um, come down. And it's like, um, just keep putting the harmful things in the black neighborhoods. Um, the cop that was um, got away with shooting with murdering the man. Uh, it, I just found it hard to believe how they could she could think someone was reaching in a car when he was walking toward her with his hands up. Um, it just was very odd. Um, I, I just, I mean, it just shows how the, the system works. They they just um, you know always criminalize us. The last thing I wanted to touch on uh, was uh, the, um the. The father of these um, three basketball players, his name is Levar Ball. He's been in the the news a lot, and I think that what he's doing is um, Black self-respect, which is why um, I'm so out for him. Um, Instead of signing a deal with Nike or or Reebok or someone, he started his own sneaker company, and um, he'll be able to sell his own products uh, without um, white interference, without being marginalized, be able to set his own price point, and I think that um, a lot of like what they did to Michael Jackson when he tried to do it, and Bill Cosby, now they're doing it to him. When he tried to do it, own something, not work for white people, you get uh, ridiculed, and um, I mean, oh, no, I think.
15: Wow. That's one I would <clears> – <throat> I don't know. I haven't followed that a whole lot, uh, the situation with Levar Ball. I know a little bit about it, and them ridiculing – uh, this black basketball player's father. I think he's in the draft. I, I guess he'll be drafted maybe this next month, whenever the draft is. Uh, but I would be confidently be willing to predict that white people are going to uh, significantly disrupt his NBA career. Um, I know I've had this conversation even when I was more confused about racism. Uh, anything that looks like black uh, entertainers, athletes looking like they are trying to move towards uh, black self-respect and being independent of racist control. Oh man, (laughs) we're going to do everything we can to sabotage. I think Dr. Claude Anderson would probably have commentary on that. Other folks we have not heard from.
30: Yes. Have you heard?
15: Yes, sir. Young scholar in the Bay area.
30: Greetings guys. to the rest of the callers. So based on one of the audios that were played in this session, um, there was one about, the, the, um, I think it was called the, um, How Seattle Has Raised the Rent In a Lot of Apartments Especially in Black Neighborhoods I found that Very Like very interesting And I connected that To like I connected it To Oakland Basically Where before, Like back when I was young There were a lot of Black people here We were living just fine We lived In like projects And basically Quote unquote The hood And we were able To afford our rent And then Later on, I think it started when I was in like middle school, going on to high school. Um, I, that's when gentrification started, and basically, gentrification is where um, in our in, in on on our terms, where the rent is raised, the all of our bills are being raised, and it is raised to where Black people can't afford it. At the time, they need to pay it, and they have to move out to other countries. They have to migrate to other countries to other countries other places and then all of the white people move in and start taking over and just it just makes it a lot different and i noticed that it created a lot of diversity for one Uh, a lot of diversity between not only white people but like the previous black people that could still afford the rent that's being due but um yeah, I found that part interesting, and also it's also I feel like they're just trying to move the black people out of Seattle. Period. Like just to keep them in a separate place, like they're trying to do with Oakland. I that's what I feel like. I'm not sure if it's correct or not, but that's just my opinion about it. Just feel like they're trying to move the, all the black people out and bring all the white people in one place to start like a white union, I guess. But um, it's just. I found it quite not surprising, but, like, interesting just to hear about this going on in other places around the world. Because, honestly, I thought it was just in Oakland, but now I know it's in Seattle and more likely other places, especially in the United States. Like, Like, back, just saying, just going back to it again, just feel like they're just trying to move the black people out. Uh, probably the country just like just keep i guess quote unquote take them back to africa probably but yeah that's just my opinion about one of the one of those audios and that's all i wanted to share i thank you for taking my call
15: absolutely great to hear again our young uh, scholar in the bay area um yeah, that, that pattern of just uh, racial dislocation, uh, also called uh, gentrification, of dislocating the black people, um, that is very widespread. Uh, Washington, D.C. is another area where there's been a lot of articles and things talking about, because uh, Washington, D.C., they have a lot of black people. And uh, their pop the numbers of black people living in D.C. has been decreasing over the past years. Dr. Welsing talked about that a lot before she uh, transitioned um quite a few areas uh where the same uh New York uh is one. I think Thomas in New York has, has talked about that as well. But quite a few areas, Even Chicago, I think Pam will probably have a few words on that uh coming up. I would say the only difference with Seattle is that Seattle does not have a lot of black people to begin with. Um like the sound clip that I play at the beginning, it says uh Seattle has a little bit of everything. I like to see say Seattle has a lot of everything. I was going to add in just to be funny, except black people. Uh, Seattle ha- does not have a lot of black people by any stretch. Uh, I did want to ask really the quick uh, young, young caller, if you're still there, sir, uh, when you said, uh, when this quote unquote gentrification happened, that it brings a lot of diversity. What do you mean when you say diversity? Oh,
30: when I say diversity, I mean like, Is bringing a lot more culture into Oakland. That's what I found beneficial about it. Just bringing the white people here, just to get a taste of what they are thinking about, and then we have other minorities coming in as well. Just, it's I just found it quite astounding how how much culture we can get out of other people and how we celebrate it in Oakland. That that's what I meant by diversity.
15: I see. I see. Thank you for uh, answering the question, sir. The other folks that we have not heard from at all, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Do we miss uh, folks? Love it when the people call in with hands up and then are silent.
31: Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Greetings, folks. Um, I think what the young scholar from the Bay Area said was, um, it had me thinking, because one thing that I've noticed about non-white, specifically Black people, is that we really don't, I think partially, maybe it's that we don't understand, so we don't, we can't hold on to a lot of negative feelings what people will consider negative feelings but i think it it, i'd argue that it's even possibly genetic for us to do that to embrace other people to be open to other people to learn from other people to teach other people um that are different from ourselves to want to show other people like to always think good of other people um to be able to think that there's something good you know when they're able to come in so i do like, But that, I think, also is kind of our downfall, too, because the evidence for me is showing that um, other people are, don't have that towards us. And the one clip that I wanted to talk about specifically was the clip about the blood pressure. Um, and, guess you were going to say, or you said what I was going to say. Um, I'm not so sure that that's, you know, accurate all the way. I think that this is me personally, i not saying that you said that, but I think that being around white people is more detrimental to non-white, specifically black people's health than it is to live in those areas. And I was a little frustrated with the clip because the I, what I'm assuming is a white person, white male, wanted to say, well, we just need to end segregation and I remember it took me a long time. Gus helped me to, to really understand. There's really no such thing as segregation. There never was. We non-white Black people have always been living amongst these white people since we've been here. Like real intimate, close spaces. Even if we have, you know, a cabin over there or whatever, we've never been able to be completely separate from them. So the term segregation is a misleading one. Um, and so I didn't like its use in the article. I didn't think it was constructive. Um, and I don't think that, like, if all living environments are made equal, I don't think that non-white, specifically black people, um, will have lower blood pressure just by living amongst white people. I don't think that at all. I think that black people have to deal with a whole lot uh, psychologically when we are around white people, especially if we are not the majority in that particular environment. So I just felt like that was misleading. And I'm trying to figure out why. Like, I think, I don't know if white people like to be just amongst white people because then, you know, maybe they turn on each other too fast. So they like to have us around so that there's always someone to watch and spy. Like, I'm beginning to think that that kind of level of, that just might be part of their pathology or psychology, that that's just how they operate. So they need us to be there. Um, I look forward to the day when we just like, nah, I could take the really big house over there in the suburbs, but it's not really worth it and I think if we stay um, or return back then we would do a lot of good um, by not leaving folks behind and yeah I just my experience is being around Black people is not healthy at all at all we should only be dealing with them at work or something like that but not living around them and in the way that they have these developments it's like there's no privacy also in these suburbs. It's not like you're sitting on an acre and a half or two acres of land. You're talking about houses. Like if you yelling or playing your music, people can hear you. If you cooking people can smell what you cooking, like it's real close. It's real tight. I don't think living around white people is where it's at for us. But thank you for listening. For sure.
15: 1842 or Emmy, excuse me. Uh, mm-hmm. Other folks who dialed in that we have not heard from at all. Uh, if you have a hand up, line should be open. Hello? Yes, ma'am.
4: Uh, hi, this is Rochelle. Um, I've called in before. Um, I missed the clip tonight because I was working on a second job and um, I do plan to go back and watch the, or listen to the archives rather. But I really just wanted to call in to express this um, appreciation for you guys, the host, as well as the other callers. It's uh, very constructive to me and i um, listening to the way the callers interact, the way the callers uh, question things, um, interact with one another in terms of uh, providing their worldview, their experiences, and just seeing that helps me in clarify my own behavior, my own actions, even my own thought processes. So I just wanted to call in to express um, appreciation for that. And I'm hoping to be able to call into workplace racism um, because now that I've obtained a second job, which um, it's, it, it requires a, a different level of um, uh, training. I'm interacting with people in a different way. I'm seeing a lot more uh, things than I used to, than I see in my, my day job, my quote-unquote day job. So, again, I'm just calling into – I didn't get to hear any of the clips, um, but it's always really constructive, rewarding, enjoyable to listen to the callers interact with one another and analyze the information, analyze the world around them. And um, even the caller who just spoke up before me, the female caller, what she said about um, people of African descent innately having something within us that's more trusting, more willing to train and help others like instinctively, I completely agree with that. I, I think that that is something that we have. And in developing our own code and understanding the world better, what we have to kind of not fight against it, but be very discerning in how we use it because given that we we are facing this this huge problem where there isn't a solution as yet, uh, we have to be aware that we shouldn't be so ready to um, necessarily think the best of others only because it has been to our detriment in the past, um, and, and I'll mute my line.
15: Great. Appreciate that. Uh Other folks that we have not heard from at all, uh, if you have a hand up, the line should be open. Uh, Feel free.
20: Hello, ma'am. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Hello. um, This is Red from Ohio. Uh, I did get a chance to hear the clips this time. And I guess I would start with the issue like other people have pointed out about the whole, if black people lived in segregated neighborhoods, and that would be better for them. It, but then also, um, Gus, you had pointed out that there was other segments saying that, so that would not be so good for them, even though, you know, because that would, just the uh, being in such close proximity to whites, that could, cause people, that could cause non-whites problems. But then also what, another thing that we all are, what I've heard before, and I think also not only on the show, but in news, in different news segments and what have you, is that even if we move into these places, non-whites move into places where there are whites, where there are better schools, better services, they just take them out once too many of us move there. And just another thing about the whole um, white flight and gentrification, I see it also here in Ohio, like um, just where my sister lives, where it, it seems like it's been a primarily black neighborhood for decades, and, like, the more I see that they, they do to, like, the, the parks around it, or even, like, there's a hospital not that far away, I see how they're slowly, I like, moving in more whites, or they are tearing down some old, very, very old houses, very old brick houses and replacing them with new, like, I don't know, plywood or whatever new substance, new type of material that they built the houses with. Um, so that that was one thing. Uh, the other thing about, uh, the there was a thing that you played about Nevada schools, and I know I have spoken about um, Nevada before, and not only is it with, um, like Nevada being, and, and like other schools, they're more willing to um, be more racist. Like the children are racist, but also um, the teachers are racist as well, and even their policies. Uh, especially like with the clothing policy, I've um, heard of students, like black female students, who, let's say they wear um, shorts or a skirt or something like that, they have gotten sent home. When a white, a white woman, a young white woman, might wear something that is is definitely too short, too revealing, and it's fine, and that can be pointed out, but this still doesn't make a difference. Uh, another thing about um, Nevada that I had that I had um, noticed was that I had actually, when I had lived there, um. And uh, the state had paid for my um, training because I was unemployed and they paid for me to get job training. And at the time, it was me and a black male friend. And we both went to like this uh, unemployment uh, office to ask for some type of assistance, at least, you know, resumes or something like that. And before they would even offer him assistance, he would have had to, I think it was sign up for the draft or something along those lines. And then that made me think about how um, Dr. Purry had uh, spoken about even like the differences between, and not only him, but just they'll how the differences between there are, the there will be females who will have more training or college degrees versus males. And, and that, and just in my personal experience, that that's what I that's how it kind of related with me. I guess the last thing that I did want to touch on was the uh, going back to the segregated um, communities. Um, I remember hearing in high school a teacher he had spoken uh, uh, he had spoken in class briefly about how his mother um, he had looked at his mother's deed and it lit and it also had I don't think it had like nigger specifically spelled out in the deed that she couldn't sell, um, resell the house to, you know, a nigger or a Negro, but it did actually have basically you can't sell um, the house to blacks. So it was definitely, and I don't even know why he brought that up because it wasn't like a, I don't even think that we were talking about it, but it it made me think about how they, how whites they do tend to, I feel like they get some type of joy just reliving all the, all the detrimental things, all the trauma that they have put on blacks. Um I, That's all I have to share. Thank you.
15: Are there other folks we've not heard from at all?
32: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to you, the hosts, the callers, and the listeners. I'm um, listening to the clips. Uh, the first clip that I I heard when I dialed in was about the black women and their uh, their infants or their their children um, dying from lack of I guess health services uh, from white people, and I thought that was particularly interesting just to focus on uh, black women and uh, the the infants and how. Um, helpless the, the infant is and, and how more susceptible the infant is than, um, than the adult to um, to, to certain, uh, certain, I guess, environmental factors. Uh, I was just researching something uh, today. I've been researching it actually for a while, but uh, today I'm also researching it, uh, trying to figure out, um, focusing on the same thing, women and infants, but not the black women and infants, but the white women and infants. And um, I'm figuring that, as I said before, if we're able to get the the atmosphere to a certain temperature for a sustained period of time, for such a period of time, that it will actually uh, cause the white women to probably have stillbirths for the entire generation, probably, but definitely um, uh, increased heat. Um, temperature uh, would cause preterm births. It would cause heart attacks. Um, And this is just looking at a couple of documents, but to get to that point, perhaps bonfires would work, perhaps not. But I I think that it would work because it it does superheat. uh, I've seen it heat the environment um, just right around that bonfire. I've been reading articles about bonfires increasing, the temperature of areas, you know, and there's actually laws on how many bonfires you can do in certain areas. There's laws that limit them. But because I think that the laws are lax in certain areas, we may be able to, if it does work, we may be able to utilize that during the summer months to get the temperature to a, a temperature where we can still withstand it, but they can't given that they're albinos. Um. And there may be, or there likely would be, a lot of collateral damage, but not not too much, you know. Um, but anyway, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is um, the, the segment where they were talking about uh, white people going to the suburbs and then uh, putting in the deed that, that if the, the property can't be sold back to black people at any time and that the government white government was helping these white people do this uh, this thing um so now what they what they've done is they've taken the the higher ground and what I think we need to do is one we don't focus on trying to buy up all the property from them because you're not you're not going to be able to do that it's it's locked in as far as their system is concerned all that trying to buy up the, uh, you know more property than them that's not going to work but you can at least position yourself Take the hills because we're going to need the hills. you don't fight uphill that's That's not a good idea, um, but anyway, take the hills by by land in the hills you can you can figure that out um as you know as the people we can figure that out and um that was mainly the the things that i I had to say, and then the other thing is just um you know I don't have a desire for friends uh because we are in a war. The only desire I have as far as communicating with people is solving this problem. I know everybody needs love and, and, and all that other sort of thing and whatever that is. We need some type of communication with each other. But right now we have to solve this problem. Uh, thank you.
15: Ryan on. I just want to say uh, when you were, you were saying everybody needs love and some sort I was thinking companionship. That might be – a good term for what you were referencing. Maybe, maybe not. But um, I think (laughs) people often seek uh, companionship so that they can have uh, contact with another person where it's uh, enjoyable. Uh, But I do think that that is very important that under uh, wartime conditions, uh, that just prioritizing our use of time and energy, I think Josh Wickett, uh, who did a lot of great counter racist work at the code.net uh, sharing some of Mr. Fuller's, uh, concepts, uh, he was saying the same thing. He said, I don't, uh, what they call hang out. I don't hang out. (laughs) If I'm going to be with someone, we have to have, you know, a specific purpose, a specific constructive purpose for what we are going to be doing. And if I ascertain that it's not constructive, then I don't hang out. Uh, I think that's a, a great way of thinking about our use of time and energy, uh, to replace the system of white supremacy. Other folks we've not heard from at all. Uh, If you have a hand up, you should be with us. Other folks that have a hand up that we have not heard from at all.
33: Can I be heard? Yes, sir yes thank you very much sir greetings to Gus, the host the listeners and callers uh, i just wanted to make some commentary on an article that i came across earlier today it's i think i think it's located in minnesota it's a college called saint olaf uh O L A F. and it was like a 6 minute audio Uh, And it was talking about, I guess, some incidents of racism that's been occurring. And I wanted to bring that up because what they talked about toward the beginning of the audio was about how I think it was nine incidents. And out of the nine, they suddenly focused on one being a so-called hoax, because that term has been uh, or is being used and promoted. And I think apparently they even have some black people using that term, um, you know, because of our victimization. But that term hoax is being used, I guess, you know, uh, maybe some victims are perhaps being, I guess, compensated, maybe with finances or something like that. I can't really speculate too deep, too deeply about it. But uh, they were interviewing different students on the campus about this incident, or just, you know, about the incidents of racism and one guy was saying he just felt like he felt totally unsafe uh for having a, a black identity or something like that. And they the way that they were introducing the the uh narrator the female narrator were uh was introducing the different students, she said that the two white students that they interviewed Classified as Midwestern white. Okay, not like that's like I never even heard of that before. Said Midwestern white. So, and she said that these two students were in support of non white students, I guess, in their response to racism. And, you know, they gave an abstract response because these are, I guess, college students or whatever. And uh, there was another. I suspect it was a white person, but they didn't introduce her as white. They just said she called herself a conservative student. And uh, this female student, I think, is uh, a a white female. She was saying that she was talking about the term systematic racism and how nobody understands it. And uh, I I don't think she was saying people should discontinue using the word but she was saying, like, how I guess the uh, organization that was there—I can't remember what they called it—they were uh, talking about like different racist incidents or racial incidents that's been occurring on the campus, um, certain notes and things like that being left on buildings, and people, I guess, being assaulted. And she was saying, you know, hey, what are what are the solutions that we should? Uh, bring up or mention. And I noticed that um, like on different TV shows and segments, people like white people will say, you know, what, is, what are the solutions? And they won't really necessarily point the focus on, you know, individual uh, white behaviors and things like that. So, you know, she was basically mentioning how this group was mentioning racism and they and she was bringing up another thing. She was saying, you know, I have no problem with talking about that. And, you know, they were saying that they can bring in a change in curriculum, you know, bring in different, I guess, she used the term, ethnic, culture, studies or whatever. And she said she had a problem with other things that they were mentioning, like gender neutral bathrooms and uh, housing. That's the term she used. And she was saying, well, none of these things have to do with racism. (laughs) So, you know, I kind of agree with her on that one. Uh, You know, I don't know what's going on with how they, I think that term conflation being used uh, when racism is being discussed. And, you know, I'm not sure if they're having white people with these different groups that are doing these protests. So I found that interesting how they uh, did that audio segment. And it's for St. Olaf University. I think that's what it's called. And it's in Minnesota. And that's all I have for now. Thank you.
15: Fascinating. That is uh, when they uh, when they have these sort of events where racism is supposed to be talked about and then it's time for gender neutral bathrooms. That's what they had at the White Privilege Conference in 2010. Gen- and that's the exact term that they were using, gender neutral. Neutral bathrooms. If you go back and listen to those 2010 broadcasts that we did live from the White Privilege Conference in Wisconsin, you'll hear me talking about those gender-neutral bathrooms, but they are great at that. They'll get you in. Ostensibly, we're going to talk about racism, and then you get there, and it's gay rights, and gender-neutral bathrooms, and heteronormativity, and anything and everything but white people practicing white supremacy. They are outstanding uh, at that sort of thing, and also and just in my view again using logic got to be a critical thinker it does not make sense if if someone is positing if this was the conservative thinker or whoever it was saying that uh sy- systematic racism no one knows what it is that is not possible like <laughs> i would if that if a white person made that statement i would say that they are being flagrantly deceptive and depending on non white people accepting that without using logic Racism, white supremacy, if they want to call it systematic racism, uh, is a crime. It is individuals classified as white practicing a crime against people they say are not white. On that basis, it's not possible. It's not logical. It's totally absurd to say that no one knows what the crime of systematic racism. That's not possible. The people that are practicing systematic racism, they know exactly what it is in detail. And you can think about that like any other criminal activity. Uh, If we're talking about, I'm going to go and enslave these dark people over here. That's another crime. The people that are doing the enslaving, they know all about that. They know about building what you got to do to, you know, steal people and enslave them. You can't do that and be ignorant of the process. Use logic. Uh, Did I, uh, did I hear that correct? It was systematic racism. Was that the the term that was used?
33: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. She was saying how, Uh, nobody understands it. And I'm like, well, did you ever ask for a definition? And I'm thinking nobody like who doesn't understand it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, she sounded like she did understand it, but she was just once again, like you said, the deception, you got to find some kind of way to deflect. So that's what it sounded like she was doing. Standard operating
15: procedure. uh, Hopefully cows listeners. Understand that uh to a great degree at this point. Uh we'll give out the number again, six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate. Uh are there folks we've not heard from at all who have a hand up.
34: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Hey, good evening, everybody. Hope everyone's having a good evening. 2812 from VA. Um, I didn't get a chance to hear uh, any of the earlier broadcasts I was on the road, but just wanted to share a couple of things that I've observed. I think I mentioned this last week, um, earlier in the week, about the Richard Spencer incident. Um, I was actually able to speak with other victims of racism this evening at my son's basketball tournament, non white uh, males and females who were not aware that this white supremacist rally had occurred right down the street about, you know, 40 minutes from where we reside. And they were just in shock when I was showing them the pictures and things of that nature. And I I had just mentioned, like, you know, that's typical. And they were like, you're right. And they were like, wow. Hmm. Um, just different reactions. Um, also, Uh, I do help out with a radio show and, um, it's in a local town and they actually, uh, interviewed Richard Spencer. Um, I was supposed to be there, but I was not. So I'm going to put in a request. If anyone is aware of Richard Spencer, he's going to be on the show again. I talked to the station, uh, manager that, uh, handles the show that I help him do. So I'd like to get some questions that from Kyle's listeners, maybe that we could ask the Spencer, that will be constructive in reference to us maybe helping other victims that are listening to the show. And just to give you a background, this show comes on an FM station that is like, I'd probably say it's really popular in Southern Virginia. So there's going to be a lot of non-white people that are listening to this broadcast. So if anybody, or Gus or anybody else has questions that they would like to ask um, that they think would be constructive, maybe can forward them to Gus or, or something like that. Um, one other thing, and then I'll stop, is I was reading my code book today, and um, I think it's important that sometimes we pick it up, if you haven't picked it up for a while, to just go through it. And I just got to a section to where Mr. Fuller was talking about the word hostage. And a, it says a hostage is also a person who is forced to do harm to others because of fear of those persons who have power over them. And that just made me immediately think about when non-white people call someone else a coon, uh, a sambo, or, you know, I would have reacted differently. I just say, no, that person is now acting as a hostage because in the system of racism, white supremacy, that's pretty much what happened. And I'll just read the definition one more time. A hostage is a person who is forced to do harm to others because of the fear of those persons who have power over them and a lot of times in all the books that we read and constant situations, sometimes the reason why I can speak for myself that we may not behave in the right manner or say things or do things is because we are in fear of who? We're in fear of white people. So that's all I wanted to share. And uh, thanks because I'll continue the lesson. Sorry I called in late and I wasn't able to hear everything earlier.
35: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I'll just make uh, a report on two things that uh, I experienced this week. Uh, first, uh, the uh, championship team is at the end of spring practice. You know, they had an intersquad scrimmage, uh, but earlier in the week, uh, the principal requested. A meeting with all of the coaches so of course uh, you know a caution light comes on and it makes me think you know damn, I'm thinking like I'm still uh, I'm not retired dude. I got to go to a meeting <laughs> some kind of meeting with the uh, principal some sort of administrator so anyway we go in there and uh, you know all of the coaches uh, head, head coach included of course and uh, it was a principal and one of his APs. And uh, he first just started going over uh, what uh, his ambitions are about the uh, football program and what he's doing, blah, blah, blah. And uh, what it comes came down to be, as far as the meeting is concerned is that he is uh, asking the players to raise a hundred dollars a piece for the rings, which I thought was very ridiculous. Uh, I'm not so much into the rings, uh, anymore, but it is a tradition, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But for someone to do the work that those young people did and went above and beyond, they should be the last people that asked to go raise some money. It should be, uh, uh, and I use the term the adults. And uh uh because they they met all the requirements. You, you you don't have a right to be a, a uh, student athlete. Well that well the athlete part of the student athlete. Uh you have to qualify. You have to qualify GPA and uh you have to uh have uh, uh the behavior that is a demand of behavior, uh so you can uh Stay on a team or intrascholastic team uh, in order to uh, do that. Let alone talking about being successful as far as winning and going to a championship. So they've already did everything they did. I actually expressed that to the principal and his and his assistant. And uh, so the other guy, who who seems to be a younger guy, you know, kind of like in a sarcastic way, well. What are your suggestions? I say, Well I'm not I'm not a I'm I don't I'm not a, I am not ai am do not i am not i do not raise and I don't raise money. I'm a football coach. Uh but uh I do would think that there's a lot of corporations around here. Uh and and some of them actually uh some of these children at this high school uh patronize them. So go ask them for money. They certainly have enough money to buy the rings, uh uh just you know out of their slush fund or whatever you know uh, you want to call it just miscellaneous fees they can pay for the these these rings and uh so anyway uh uh they uh placing all that in consideration but nevertheless even if it's if, if several several of the of the kids that uh, I know that probably wouldn't be able to to uh afford $100 let alone talking about their parents to be able to do it. And I would assist in order to get some of them rings, uh, myself, if that, if that's cause to do, uh, but, uh, moving on, mind you now, if, if if any one of the callers don't know, 99% of these, these children on the team are, are non white black males, uh, moving on, uh, was asked to attend a, a, uh, I guess you want to call it a meeting, uh, something about commemorating, uh, as we all, I think would know that, uh, May 19th, uh, was, um, Minister Malcolm's birthday. And, uh, there was a group of people who were meeting at a house, uh, that is called a Kaumba house. Uh, and they were, according to my knowledge, reportedly was, was recognizing uh Minister Malcolm's birthday. So I go and uh I've you know I've been at these events, you know, off and on for over thirty years. And uh so go there, you know, with the you know, some people were dressed in African garbs, uh, uh and that sort of thing and uh basically the the idea with, with Minister Malcolm was actually was not the centered event. Uh What it was, it, it was, they were just using that to individuals to sell things or, or to advertise whatever personal projects that they were doing, Uh which kind of like, you know, I thought was a little bit disappointing uh, because I certainly wouldn't have went there if I knew that, but nevertheless, you know, tweeters are I guess you know people gotta find a way to uh uh make a living, that sort of thing. And so anyway, I I just sat I just sat through it because, you know, uh an associate of mine uh asked me to, to attend. And this one uh uh non white black male uh started talking about the idea that uh he is he is tired of uh the quote unquote the United States Uh, And all of his problems, and and uh, I made up my mind, and I left and went back, quote unquote, home to Africa, back home to Africa, uh, 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 Tanzania to be exact, the place that's called Tanzania and, uh, didn't know anything about farming and learn how to farm and, and plan. And he was basically just describing on how successful quote unquote, he, uh, has been into planning this and planning that. And I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm about to, I'm about to just, just get up, get up out of my seat and throw the cheer or something like that. You know, but, but I, you know, I've learned to be patient when I'm hearing people talking and then again, there's such thing as VGQ, but, uh, what clicks in my mind is to go into the question mode. So when, it, when he finished with his uh, very long spill, very long uh, uh, dissertation on what he's doing and how successful he is, I uh, said, well, uh, given the fact that uh, uh, do you have the idea that all of that, what you say you have done can be destroyed? within a few seconds and it was like crickets, uh, in the background, <laughs> in the background. Uh, and basically he said, he, and I, I was, I put it in the question from the standpoint of, uh, what would take places if there's attempt to destroy, uh, this, what you, this is what you, uh, was attempting to do. And, and he said, oh, that's, that's a good question. That's a good question. Uh, but he never did really, you know, kind of like answer. He didn't answer the question at all. You know, but uh, just a thought, you know, as far as that concerned. But uh, it ended up being, a, you know, uh, some constructive conversation, even with the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, non-white black male who uh, was making his uh, report about what he was doing with the, uh, the farming. I said, that's a good idea to have that skill and to be able to apply it. Uh matter of fact some other people in the in the meeting also stated that you know, you, you really didn't have to go, go go to Africa to do that. You you could you could have uh you could make that attempt right right where you you're at in this part of the world. Uh, and whatever problems you're going to have, it's it's basically the same people. Know. You know, that sort of thing.
21: Appreciate but uh
35: that. yeah, that's that's, uh, that's, that's basically what I, what I went through this week. Thank you. Yes, sir. Appreciate that. Retired
15: firefighter. I just wanted to make sure we got, uh, the other folks in who we hadn't heard from, uh, if anybody, if you have additional commentary, uh, retired firefighter, or anyone else, uh, once we get everybody in, once I make sure everybody's got their one opportunity to share, feel free. If you have additional commentary, uh, that you want to share, we should, uh, we should have time. Uh, is there anyone who has a hand up that we've not heard from at all? Uh, anybody who uh, has a hand up that had commentary they wanted to share. Folks up that we've not heard from, I guess they called in more recently. Uh if you have a hand up, uh feel free Again, love the people call it. Do, they might be uh, in a location where they're not able to speak now. So I guess the people that dialed in more recently with the hand up uh, who we're not hearing from as of yet, uh, will check back in uh, in a minute or so to see if they uh, are in a spot where they can share. Have you
10: heard? Yes, ma'am, Princess.
15: Yes, um, I was just calling in. I, I was
11: gonna call in a little bit earlier but I had a family function that I had to attend to but I was calling in I I was going to call in also Thursday but just been busy uh, with work and some other issues um, going on Um, I've been seeing a lot of these articles about um, Black people, uh, Black children or kids in high school or whatnot, um, having issues in relation to their hair. And um, I myself am um, wearing natural hair, um, just uh, dealing with the stuff in the workplace um, uh, as a reference to Black people and their hair. I think my problem has been lately, I don't know if people have probably been on my page and saw that I subscribed to a couple of um, natural hair uh, groups, not that I selected them, I guess people added me to them, but nonetheless, I've just noticed that there's a lot of people uh, in there who classify themselves as white in these uh, dread and lock groups, and I just I just find it disheartening and frustrating because it seems like the black people in these groups do not see the correlation of having a white person or white people in these supposed black groups. Um, And at the same time, we're having these issues with um, children uh, being, uh, you know, discouraged or being assaulted because of their hair as well as, you know, we're still being discriminated against because of our hair. And um, I was recently uh, kicked out one of out of one of these groups, uh, because of my opinions of me and a few others, apparently by um, some black people. Um, these, uh, I had looked up the information, I guess they were uh, these four black female administrators on this page, apparently, and just really seeing how black people were just caping for these two lone white people that was apparently locking their hair, if you will. And like I said, it's just, I don't, I don't know. Uh, It was kind of hard for me to take anybody serious as far as anybody that would comment on the issue on my page or within the group as far as you know whenever they would share articles of these uh, issues with these kids having problems with um, their hair being accepted in school and stuff like that because I'm like you know um, uh, I did receive a call from corporate, we've been playing a little bit of phone tag, I would have called Mr. Fuller in regards to my workplace uh, situation. Um, But I just kind of left it uh, where, you know, uh, just leaving it the ball in their court, because I don't want it to look like, oh, I'm just trying to, you know, just bother anybody. I just have my information that Mr. Fuller had told me to type up and, um, you know, fax or send to corporate in regards to what we discussed, and you know, uh, until I, you know, we can have a have a time where I'm available to speak to whoever the investigator or personnel is from HR or corporate. You know, I just then leaving messages and stuff like that for them to let them know that I'm following up with them and stuff like that. Um,
15: is that all you had? That's it for now. All oh, right. On. Yes. appreciate that princess workplace. Racism is on Thursday. Uh, always great if you, uh, I think I've encouraged other listeners as well, you can uh, reach out to Mr. Fuller if you want to get his input. He generally is very helpful, very eager to help. It's been my experience. Uh, other victims of racism uh, deal with problems in the workplace. So I'm um, glad to hear, Princess, you were able to uh, get some strategies from Mr. Fuller and then uh, implementing those, uh, just uh, being consistent with that, documenting Thursday, Workplace Racism, again, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you want to share tips, give us updates, let us know. Uh, That's what we do every Thursday evening. Uh, Other folks that we've not heard from at all, uh, if you have commentary, you should be with us. Watch the background noise, please, as well. Are there folks that we've missed completely? Anybody that has a hand up that we've not heard from at all? Okay, I think we got everybody. Might have missed uh, one or two folks, but you know, maybe they uh, will comment later. Uh, other folks, uh, even if you've already spoken up, if you have commentary, additional comments, questions, feel free. Have you Yes,
29: sir. Yes. Um, just wanted to say, um, in reference to what the firefighter said. Now, I, I remember being in high school and playing football, and I went to a uh, um, you know, a, a fairly diverse Catholic school and um, winning the state championship. We won it twice. And um, getting a memo for the rings. And uh, what the white people did was exactly what the firefighter did, said. They went to the local pizzerias in that area, um, different places that the students patronized, and they got the money up for the rings. We didn't have to pay anything for them. Um, we didn't even have to go in and solicit the funds ourselves. They went and did it themselves. Now, these are the Catholics. No one can get money like them. But uh, what he's saying is absolutely right. You know, you expect um, fairly marginalized, poorer children to go and buy a $100 ring. And um, to be honest with you, I couldn't tell you where either of those rings are or any of the county championship rings, any of that stuff is today. I know it's in my mother's house probably somewhere, but I wouldn't even know where to begin looking for that stuff. So the importance fact of it in the long term isn't that important. Um, And um, I just wanted to comment on that uh, as far as what he said. Um, As far as the clips on Mr. Curry, I'm shocked that it's taken this long for white people to um, go at Mr. Curry, um, Dr. Curry. I'm just listening to some of the commentary he's made on this show. And uh, I always thought it was just amazing that he's been able to keep um, that job, you know, um, and stay in good um, standings with that institution and have some of the views he has. And um, obviously it looks like um, they might be catching up to him somewhat, although he hasn't been fired or anything. They might not even go that far, but it's just uh, putting everyone on notice there that um, this is someone that we need to look at. Uh, I think it's um, pretty standard as per what they do. Um, and the uh, um, last little tip that I wanted to add in, as far as um, going back to uh, what, what uh, when I mentioned um, Lavar Ball earlier, and you, your commentary, and just to say that um, several of the NBA players have um, said they're going to try to hurt this guy when he comes into the league uh, because they don't like what the father's doing, and and um, just a lot of the um, I guess them um, listening to the feeding into the negative um, media, um, looking for their white validation. Um, they they're going to come out with these type of posts um that they're gonna go and hurt another black man for him trying to actually own his own um brand and um brand his own company and I just felt like that was um totally um uh, a part of the system how they often um could get us to um turn on one another um and uh, what's did the guy called it earlier um uh he called it man he got it from the cold book um uh, I thought that was great um uh, hostage he wasn't victim. Hostage, yeah, a bunch of a bunch of millionaire black hostages in the NBA who um, feel like they have to go out now and um, stand up to, uh, um, to this black man for the white man. It's just, you know, it's just just uh, very compelling. It shows the system we're in and the mindset we're under. I mute my Thank you.
15: I did want to say that is is relevant. Um, it just happens to be that we're talking about entertainment, but it fits any context uh it's been my experience whites when they start uh verbally attacking a non-white person particularly a black person uh many victims of white supremacy uh will also be impacted by that and they will add on in verbally attacking and talking bad about that non-white person. Uh, That's just how the system of racism, white supremacy works. That happens frequently using the same uh, logic that was presented earlier. That's what can happen to hostages under the system of white supremacy. But I was having a conversation this week uh, with a cows listener and she was talking about uh, basketball, same thing. And she said, uh, I'm rooting for the Celtics. She's not even in Massachusetts, but for whatever reason, she's rooting for the Celtics, whatever. And this was before uh, the series they were in started. And she said, uh, LeBron James, he never gets injured. And I just, I hate his guts. And I said, wow, that's interesting. Uh, Why do you not like him? And she, it took a while. Like she did. It wasn't like she had a list of, you know, prepared reasons. Like I've, you know, paid attention or he did this or he did that. It like, it took a while for her to manufacture her, her list of reasons. And she said, uh, you know, man. What if he could get hurt? I mean, gosh, he never gets hurt. I hope he gets hurt or something. And I, mean, and I was, I was just appalled, like uh, to sit around and and wish harm uh, on another black person. I mean, I don't care. You know who you want uh, to win. I live in Seattle. I've been in the city where uh, the local sports team won the Super Bowl, and it did not make any impact uh, on my life. It did not make anything. It did not improve anything for me it did not solve any problems they're kicking black people out of the city right now they just went to went to two super bowls and they're booting black people out of the city left and right it'll be you know richard sermon and he might be leaving too so i mean who knows it might not even be uh any black people left to cheer on the seahawks uh it just uh, and i told this to the listener that i think uh just what i just said Uh, whites talk bad about Mr. James frequently they talk bad about LeVar Ball frequently Uh, and black people period they talk bad about them all the time and a lot of times victims of racism we end up being contaminated with that racist rhetoric and we end up doing the same thing. That's what, when Dr. Welsing, when she talks about black self-respect, it doesn't mean that I have to like a person or be in, uh, in love with this person or agree with their views, but I'm not out of black self-respect. I am not going to sit around and talk bad, uh, about this black person, uh, regardless of what they're doing or what they're saying. And I certainly am not going to sit around and talk about wishing harm or, you know, I'm going to injure, uh, this black person because I don't like their, you know, marketing strategy and what they're doing with their paraphernalia. I mean, wow, that is the system of white supremacy on display again. Whites are most to blame. Other folks have commentary?
35: Yes, sir. That, that reminds me of the Ponce, the Ponce twins, two non-white black males, one place for the Pittsburgh Steelers and other for the Miami Dolphins, who has spoken up for uh, the, the white male murderer who committed suicide, former tight end of the uh, New England Patriots, uh, but yet uh, participated in the terror and the torture of a black male for the Miami Dolphins, well, at least the one that is the starting center for the Miami Dolphins that half of the twin uh, in defense of that white male who was causing havoc on the team uh against this uh this non white black male that uh uh briefly played for the dolphins and came with the with the staff, and i just can't remember his name but I think you recall the incident because it really went national jonathan uh <laughs> Yes. Yes. Uh, they they are, they are two examples of that. What, what you, 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 two guys are talking about, uh, also back to the, uh, the ring, ring situation, the white male athletic director had the nerve to, uh, uh, give some sort of, uh, negative, uh, 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 I, I would call it negative, uh, conjoling uh to the uh the head coach about uh the only white male that's on the team because he was able to raise some money mind you now his parents parent or parent is owners of a business in the area uh and uh i just thought that was such a joke you know i i I don't say too much you know as far as they're concerned because uh Uh, from the standpoint of if they're not necessarily talking to me. But when it comes to uh, the children, I'm going to speak on their behalf. Uh, Because, as I mentioned before, nine out of ten of them are non-white black males. So uh, those are just some of the observations that I've had. Thank you. The person who dialed in... Yes, ma'am. I just wanted to get the
15: caller on the headset, the caller on the headset that we haven't heard from at all. Did you have commentary?
20: Yes. Uh, Can you hear me?
15: Yes, ma'am.
20: I
4: wanted to ask Thomas from the a question. I wanted to ask him um, if stop and frisk is still an active practice uh, primarily targeting blacks in New York City Um, because I know that when de Blasio was uh, uh, placed in office, he was going to reform that program, and I wanted to know if uh, Thomas in New York, uh, given his experience living there, if he's seen any change or if it still continues to target blacks. And the reason why I ask is because I know New York City kind of sets the tone and model for uh, other police departments throughout the state. So, thank you.
33: Mm-hmm.
29: Um, absolutely. Um, it, in how these black and dark Latinos, and um, just a, a tidbit on that is, um, right after he got uh he came in and he spoke very um, bad about stop and frisk. It did stop, but it was it didn't stop because he said something. It stopped because the police stopped working. Um, they felt like you know he was against them. They turned their backs on him, and they weren't going to fight crime. But as things settled down and got back to normal, um, you could get stop and frisk in new york city but it happens everywhere it's not just new york i mean i would say anywhere you live they could stop i was stopped a few weeks ago they said i fit the description of someone that i um, committed a crime i'm six five that guy was five six um he was a lot darker than me um so i mean you know they can use any ref- any reason to do it i think that that's what they're doing now they're just using a reason um to say oh we're doing this for this reason or that reason, but um, it's not just flat out. We're just for no reason. Um, another thing is um, uh, since the terrorism thing, and this I find impacts black people as well. Um, they can stop you at any time on the train or as you're entering the subway, and just look through your bag, which I think is um, and I see the thing set up here in Harlem. Like I'm like, you know, we don't have any terrorists around here. You know, I mean, but. You know, it's it's just what they could do. Right on.
15: Appreciate the uh, question and answer. Uh, I'm not sure, was that uh, that Red in Ohio who was speaking up, or was that one of our other female callers?
20: No, um, it it was me. Um, I just actually had a question for the parents on the line. Um, It's been something that's been on my mind for weeks, and I keep forgetting to bring it up during the compensatory call-in. I actually have a family member who, a younger family member who's still in, like, um, elementary school, and I had heard that he has not gotten any homework since he came back from um, Christmas break, and I know, like, when I was in school, um, especially, like, middle school, high school, that was not something that was ever heard of. Like, we would still have to do something, even read a book or, or something, but, he doesn't have to do anything, and there's no, and it doesn't seem like that. that's something that's, that has even changed, so it seems like not only are they not even making, you know, and he goes to public school, but it seems like not only are, like, whites, you know, expelling children or suspending children, but it's like they're not even giving them things to do outside of school, so that was definitely something that was concerning me, so that's all, uh, that's the other thing I had.
15: Hmm. I'll encourage if we have parents uh, to speak up if they have commentary on that. I do not have offspring. However, I do know just from checking uh, the news regularly that that has been uh, reported regularly for about the past 12 months. Uh, this has uh, been kind of a new push for many different teachers to not give out homework or to give out very little Uh, homework and some people were saying you know that they don't like this because it just means that uh, children now have lots and lots of free time they have nothing to do so they can just come home and you know watch tv or play video games or whatever else they're uh gonna do uh once they get i guess if it's black children they'll go out and you know commit strong-arm robberies but uh this i have heard this uh people talking about this and in some places uh, people are saying that they don't like it in other places uh for various and i think they were given a, a variety of reasons not having textbooks um Lots of different. uh, There were other reasons, uh, but where they were saying, well, maybe this is something that we should do, uh, either going with a lot less homework or no homework at all. But uh, if we have parents who have any input on this, that would be grand.
34: Yes, sir. That is accurate as a parent of a high schooler and a middle schooler. um, I can tell you from my oldest. He had a French teacher that literally might have given them homework in january and then the last assignments were given maybe two weeks ago and uh, he had another class it was the same thing same thing with the middle school was do a different situation um but maybe half the classes are not giving away homework what i did myself uh to when i started noticing that trend was i gave them work myself Um, the internet is a great resource and i know you'll probably recommend this but There's a million different things you can give them on racism or even just anything constructed to keep their brains functioning in those classes. So if it's like an English class, you can maybe give them, you know, higher level work or something. But that's just a suggestion that I have. But that's not going to be uncommon. Um, I don't know what the system of white supremacy intends to do with not giving out so much homework. But for me, it sounds like it's something to benefit white female teachers. In some way or some form, it's going to benefit them. So I in my life
15: benefit them. Do you have any speculation as to how that would benefit white
34: female teachers? Um, um, I, I just, I, I just, <clears throat> um, uh, my brain was still thinking about it when I made that statement, so maybe it wouldn't have been the best thing to say. But it's just for. Sometimes even like in my kids' school it's like, oh, we have to study for more SOLs or or we have to do all these different testing and it's like less time actually teaching kids to do something. And I'm like, well what does that benefit you know, I'm thinking, how does that benefit them? Do is it make the qualifications easier for them to become educated? I could just be going totally left field, but I just think that it's it's gonna definitely benefit the system of white supremacy, maybe not benefit them directly. But um, giving kids less homework in order to accomplish, like, what? You know, I even asked my kids with, like, this quote-unquote do math, uh, my fiance and teacher, I asked her why they even change it. She said, I had no idea. She was she was an educator. She worked in New York City Public Schools for years. Um, but obviously the people making those decisions are white people. So I don't want to get totally off, but you're correct. I, I should have thought about that before I said it. But uh, give me a little bit more time. I, I might think so. <laughs> Teddy. yes ma'am
20: i'm sorry i feel like i kind of i did understand him as far as how they because it does make sense how the white uh, white women's uh, teachers would benefit because what i've heard from teachers that i've known is that when they usually have to grade homework after hours and that's just making their job a whole lot easier but then it's also like what I and, – and I had um, been working with some of the, the, the younger females, males and females in my family and actually making them read the newspaper and trying to pick out things that were somewhat uh, about racism. But I definitely understand because I know, like I said, it seems like they're not really even grading the, the papers. So they, I remember when I was in school, they would make all the other students grade their own papers. Or like um some teachers, I guess the, the ones that were halfway decent or cared somewhat about their job, they would take the homework home. So um but, but thank you though for that.
15: Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point, uh, about making it easier for white women teachers then they can, you know, go home and kick their feet up and watch, you know, reruns of Sex in the City or whatever else they're doing, plotting on how they're going to uh suspend the next crop of uh black students. Uh, in terms of them not having a grade uh, great homework uh, or even assign it, uh, do we have any I,
29: other? I, yes, sir. Yeah, I just wanted to say on that. Um, my Mother was a school teacher for thirty five years, and I remember, um, um, hey, if we had to go somewhere and she was grading papers, you know, I would offer the help, you know, so we could get it done faster because it did take up a lot of time. But I find that the this push for less homework and stuff kind of coincides with. Um, some of the laws that are holding teachers more accountable for um, the students' um, uh, lack of um, lack of, of success in school. So, per se, if um, kids don't do their homework, which I think um, was a huge thing here in New York City, uh, a lot of the kids weren't doing their homework and were failing because of that. Now, you take that away. Now, that teacher is not a failing teacher. That's um, not held against her. You know, she's not giving out the homework that they're not doing. So therefore, um, that that won't go against her bad grade as a teacher. I think that could be one of the reasons as well. Could be,
11: can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I just wanted to make a quick, uh, um uh, or piggyback off of that. Cause I know when I, you know, when most of us was in school. Um, it was a heavy emphasis on homework, and even if you were in AP courses, uh, I know um, you know you had a lot of homework. But I did uh, note that a lot of my AP um, teachers uh, put the ball in our court and making us responsible, and taking notes, creating our own study notes, as well as you know making sure like we were able to. Comprehend what was being taught, and I think that's key too uh, in um, how they go about doing education. Uh, It's it's basically making the kids more, uh, or in their eyes, it they're basically saying that well, it puts the accountability, it switches it from the white females to the children, so that way when you know they do these studies ten or fifteen years down the line, they say, oh well you know, if they would have had the, you know, wherewithal to make their notes or study or this and the other, um, you know, maybe they would have been able to do such and such It's you know, like I said, like, kind of like a bait and switch. Because uh, really, you know, it it just like you said, it allows these teachers to not have to worry about um, really Studying whether or not these children are meeting the different competencies of, you know, what they're learning. Are they learning it, or are they are they just learning to regurgitate something? Like, are they really comprehending whatever they're being taught? So.
15: Appreciate that from Princess as well. Uh, last fifteen minutes or so in the program, so please do not wait till the last minute if you think you have. Uh, commentary you want to share? If you're a parent, you want to give commentary on the homework piece or anything else that we've uh, touched upon uh, this evening. I'll go ahead, speak now. Do not wait till the last uh, few minutes to speak. Uh, anybody that we missed completely, have a hand up that had commentary. Anybody who has not been able to speak at all, we got everybody who has a hand up. Had a hand up. Okay. Uh, Any other other, uh, folks who had commentary they wanted to make sure they got in?
29: Hey, Gus, I have a theory now. um, In the charter schools in New York where my kids attend, they have to read um, 60. I think my daughter's in high school. She has to do 80 books, um, be able to take an ELA test, which is pretty much like a, a test with like five or six questions based on the book that you wouldn't have knowledge unless you read the whole book. The that they read it, and um, they get graded on that test, and that's how they move up to the next re- re- um, reading level. My son, um, although he's the youngest of them, um, he he's already twelfth um, grade reading level in the seventh grade, so he doesn't no longer have to participate in the ELA program um, because he's already done all his met all his qualifications. Now, at the same time that they're forcing all this reading on the charter schools, you're taking it out of the public schools, and um, if Betty DeVos, who's a big time advocate of charter teaching, um, I think what they're trying to do is um, make the charter school's grades so much better than the public school's grades that uh, the public has no problem going away with the public school system. And therefore, they can just move into this private charter school system. And once they do that, of course, uh, the qualifications and charter is going to go down dramatically. So right now they're pushing these kids because um that's one of the huge things. My wife definitely always on the phone. Um uh, you know you guys are pushing them too much. It's, it's it's just so petty with some of the things they call about and the kids are getting in trouble for. Um uh, that that we've even decided we might not put our kids um our, my twins into a a charter high school. You know the same at least the same same system of charter that they're in because it's just so petty. Uh, however, um if it's the public schools aren't getting that same reading and they're not doing the same work, how are they going to score the same on the state testing? Um, in, in the, in the, charter, um, the public schools did terrible on the state testing here in New York last year, and the charter schools did very well, and those that didn't do well, they closed down, and those were mostly the black-ran charter schools. But the white ranch charter schools are pushing and advocating for all this, um, this reading, all of this um, technical work where you don't get to help your kids with the homework. Everything's done in a computer so they're able to control the grading and everything, and I think it's for that purpose to shut down the public school and have the people who send their kids to public schools and depend on the public school system totally for a total charter system. And I'm um, my mind thinking.
10: Hmm.
15: Uh, just to echo the point that I made earlier, uh, even back when the news clips were playing uh, about how, as the number of Black people increases, whites uh, become disgusted uh, about. You know, having effective services uh, like health care, public education, public transportation, Uh, I think with public schools, I think unless I've been misinformed, there are already more non-white children in public schools than white children. I think that is going to and I've been saying this for a while I think that is going to strongly influence uh white's thinking and probably already has white's you know they tend to be very forward thinking I'm sure that they uh saw that this was going to be a problem uh way way earlier years decades earlier so Uh, I think uh, that could be uh, and could have been influencing the thinking about public education for years, this whole drive. I think Dr. Umar has been talking about this, uh, the erosion of public schools with charter schools and funding. And uh, even they talked about it in the clip, spending less uh, per student uh, in North Carolina. They were talking about that. So uh, the homework thing could be a part of that, Uh, I've I think, for. Most of my life, I've heard people saying, you know, bemoaning the quality of public education in the United States, giving out less homework does not seem to be the way you would correct that problem. Particularly uh, if we're talking about black students, when every other day they're talking about disparities in education uh, to then say, well, let's just have no no homework uh, to close that deficit. That doesn't seem logical to me. Uh, We have other folks have commentary they want to get in. Do we miss anybody? Everybody, we got everybody who had commentary they wanted to share.
29: Last thing, Gus. Very last thing. Laval Bell, Cal Bell, La,
34: uh, <laughs>
29: Cal Bell. Every time you hear that name, he's married to a white woman who's dying from cancer. Um, it, um, I, I think that, that's
34: huge.
15: Mm. Wow. The uh, that piece on the maternal mortality rate, I thought was uh, extremely important. That has a tremendous impact uh, on black females, uh, the war of racism, white supremacy. And I guess that's maybe something else that should be discussed. I mean, if we people that spend a lot of time talking about area eight and uh, black male, black female uh, relationships, maybe that's something that should be discussed. Uh, if that much uh, death and trauma is happening with, Uh, the childbirth process for black females uh, and black children in this part of the world, then, Hey, we need to have, you know, serious dialogue. uh, And do we want to do a natural birth process so we can avoid all that and, you know, breastfeeding and all of that. But I mean, serious conversation about that before you even get to the bedroom uh, for people that, you know, endorse Mr. Fuller's concept of having 200 questions. Maybe that should be a part of the conversation before things get too you know, rowdy in the bedroom. Uh, folks satisfied anything else they need to make
34: sure they get in before we are all good. Uh, I guess I, I did think of one, um, it, well, it was on my brain. I just didn't know how to, um, articulate it, but it was a reference to, I know that where I am, it's been a
29: huge
34: impact of testing has literally become, uh, it's just all about testing, testing for education, sorry, area of education. That testing is very important. And a lot of teachers, you know, they would complain that they're doing a whole lot of testing. But what I'm seeing is that it's 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 giving, non-white kids do, you know, from I can even see my son's middle school, they do not perform well on these tests. And if you're going to a test-based module, you're literally gonna have a bunch of non-white kids that are not performing increases in suspensions and things of that nature continue to say that we're going to have problems in school and we need more educators you know i i think i mentioned this maybe a year ago but um i went to a education day at my son's school and literally i'd say if there were 400 teachers that came out there 380 were white females literally and there's a huge push; they're still getting hired and i just think it's going to be a benefit for them to Maybe the qualifications are a little bit less. You can come in and be a teacher. You're not giving them enough homework, and we're still going to be able to discipline and keep these new and these Latin kids, and they're not going to be performing, and we've got to have more people for them. But in the area of testing, I can see that's a huge benefit because literally they don't give homework. They just say we've got to prepare for a test, and it just gives a lot of of 21-year-old non-qualified white women a lot of jobs that they really shouldn't have.
15: Dr. Cambon might refer to that as uh, another form of white welfare. Uh if I heard uh correctly you said it was uh 400 teachers came uh, and that roughly 380 of them were uh white women, that would be 95% white women at this event if those numbers are accurate. Again, that's the sort of thing that I think should be Uh, Front Center, uh, when we discuss what they call the school-to-prison pipeline or any other problems with education, we are specifically talking about the domain of white women. No contest. Uh, Any other commentary folks needed to get in before we're all done? I did want to say about uh, Dr. Curry, that segment, uh, the abuse, the terrorism that he's being subjected to. It was not this podcast. Uh, He's been a guest here numerous times, but it was not us. It was a a podcast uh, segment that he did on uh, Rob Redding's program in 2012 where he was talking about the movie Django Unchained. Uh, And he was talking about the segment where they were talking about uh, black people committing violence against uh, white people. Leonardo DiCaprio's character in the movie uh, has that scene where he's talking about that. So they dug this up from five years ago, uh, his commentary uh, to, you know, take it out of context and, you know, threaten him with uh, being lynched and killed and uh, everything else. Uh, I uh, I I hope uh, he's able to come on the program at some point to kind of share. Uh, how Texas A&M has supported him uh, through all this, if they have offered counseling or anything else uh, to make sure that uh, he's doing well, especially, you know, given all the threats and everything that that he has received and how uh, he's talked about this with his family, because I know he has children. So, I mean, I, I think I brought this point up previously, uh, that if you are a black person, male, female, child, and you work against racism uh, it could have an impact. It likely will have a direct impact uh, on the people that you care most about, because racists they tend to say, "Hey, you know, we will not only we ret- retaliate against you. We'll make sure we get if you, you know, are married or if you have offspring or parents, siblings, friends that you care about. We'll make sure that we go after them too, uh, as a form of punishment for trying to disrupt our system." But uh, hopefully, we'll get to hear more details. And uh, take it seriously. That's I talk about that all the time. Take it seriously. When we're talking about racism, white supremacy, uh, speak as if the whole world is hearing what you're going to say. You're comfortable with that and the ramifications of it, because so many people have been killed, attacked, threatened, terrorized just for talking about racism. I say that all the time. Uh, Anything else are folks satisfied?
29: About the child mortality, um, the infant mortality piece, um, just uh, I work in, um, in a hospital, and when I do labor and delivery, which is um, where people have the babies, uh, since I worked here, and I I do it maybe twice a week, so I get to see all the kids, It's only been two whites um, full-fledged. It was a few whites that had babies with non-white men, but um, two white women who's had a baby in this hospital in a city that has a huge white population. So either they're not having kids or they're just not having um, them here. But I just found it very compelling that they're not having babies. um, So Latinos are in there. You see the Asians, you see the uh, Latinos, blacks, of course, but you don't see any whites. Red. I
12: just wanted to add one
20: last thing. Um, just about what you were saying about Dr. Curry. I did actually read through everything that he said, and also it seems like as far as from the university standpoint, um, I read the the letter that the president wrote, and it seemed like it really was speaking to the parents of white students and also the white students themselves, because it seemed like he kept referencing, well, this is not a part of – our principles our core values i feel like that was definitely some of the verbiage that he used that the, the president himself used and um at least on a on a good though um amazon they do have uh dr curry's book available for pre-order so i am excited so once it is get once it does ship i'll be able to get it so that's all i have thank you
15: Awesome. I was thinking about that, too, that uh, at minimum, maybe he could use this for free advertising uh, for the new book. Uh, the Man Knot uh, should be coming out this summer. Uh, everyone satisfied?
33: Oh, yes. Yeah. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, just really, really quick. I forgot to make a mention about uh, there's this. tenth, I mean, 10 year old black male student. Mm-hmm. Uh, up in chelsea alabama um he was talking about he's been uh the victim of racism and there's this i believe this poem this racist poem one of his uh so-called classmates uh said to him and if i could read it really quick it says roses are red violets are blue i am white you should be too roses are red Violets are blue. I am white. Why aren't you? Roses are red. Violets are blue. God made me pretty. What happened to you? So, he he said like the children been chanting this to him in the classroom, and he's only ten years old. So, uh, as you said, racist child. That's that's very accurate. And uh, that's that's all I have.
15: Mm. Young white terrorists in action. Mm. They are not ignorant about racism that piece of uh, verbiage earlier i think that you shared systematic racism and people no one understands what that is hogwash those little 10 year old terrorists they understand exactly uh what systematic racism is and it sounds like from uh very closely uh very close to the cradle and it sounds like they are already doing their part uh to uphold the system of white supremacy uh Standard and and very, very common. Uh, You see those type or at least I see those uh, type of reports on a weekly basis. Uh, If you're checking the news uh, just here in the United States, that is very, very common. Racist man, racist woman, racist child. Uh, With that, we'll be here tomorrow. Global Sunday talk on racism, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, We should have lots of our listeners from uh, various Parts around the globe Uh, we will give our international views perspective on white supremacy Pam should be with us this coming Wednesday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific looking forward to hearing from her as well Uh, thanks to all the folks who tuned in this evening I hope it has been a constructive investment of your Saturday evening Uh, if you have a problem question guest suggestion you can't find something in the archive uh, just drop an email at gmail.com until justice at gmail.com with that i will again encourage sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy Uh, i know it's close to summertime you want to go out i'm sure we even got some folks who might be graduating or have people that they care about that are graduating spectacular congratulations uh you do not while you are out celebrating you do not want to put yourself in a potential harm's way uh, by being under the influence while the system of white terrorism is operating. Racists do not cease their activities just because it is a sunny day. Uh, There's a lot of evidence uh, that black people being under the influence, that's cigarettes, alcohol, cannabis, whatever it is uh, that being under the influence of these substances Poisons. It has not helped us replace white supremacy with justice and often it has made it much, much easier for race soldiers like Betty Shelby, still got her job with the police department as I understand it. Uh, Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, it makes it way easy uh, for them to terrorize and abuse us, do whatever they want. Oh, Negro smelled like he had a drink or was acting like he was under the influence PCP crack, so we had to shoot him, you know, 80 times. Uh, sobriety would be best. it is not going to help us neutralize a racist man, racist woman at all, and that is whites with or without a badge they're dangerous, you want to be sober, so you can use your full functioning brain computer to solve problems. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest level of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
34: Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a
33: victim, no brother.
34: Problem. You're a
15: victim.
33: All right. I'm a victim of
5: 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed
34: my conditioning.
28: Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
35: This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky.
26: No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep
12: your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.